More calling Orson. Come in, Orson. You know, what's going on? This button is usually green by now and nothing is happening. It doesn't matter, does it? I mean, they're not ready for ages anyway. I mean, we've normally got like an hour of just hanging around waiting for them. Uh, So what do we do? Well, I mean, you know, I don't know. Check, obviously, because... Normally they've said something, you know, by now. Yeah. At least. But I, you know, I mean, what are we supposed to do? There can't be no show. Oh, God. Do, do we have to do it all? Why not the whole show? That's, <laughs> that would that's... be ridiculous. Uh, you know what? I think we're going to have to do the whole show, Richard. Oh, God. Oh, oh, no. But I can't help but feel like there's something just missing here that we can't do the show without it's not otters no no we no, got no, that no. yeah it's, it's definitely we got plenty we got... of otters well of course i mean the pit's always full how are you supposed to keep the car powered uh is it sunshine and daisies no oh, no we're good on those yeah Ooh, beer there you go hey To digital noise coming from the alternate universe. Hello. Apparently, the regular universe is uh, not answering their phone. Not I don't so know what's regular. Going on. Not so regular. Or too regular. Well, I guess from our perspective, we're the regular universe. So, oh, God, that's so zen. Yeah, it's so weird to even think we would have called ourselves the alternative universe. I don't know about that. Uh, you know what? I got to stop make, listening to what Brian tells me to do. You're, you're warping <laughs> my mind, man. <laughs> well, I am Chris, and this is Richard. Hello. And we are going to be handling the duties on Digital Noise today. Uh, we've got a lot of titles to talk about, of course. But, of course, I want to start off... Did I say a course twice? Sorry. Maybe. <laughs> I want to start off by thanking you guys for being regular listeners to oneofus.net and to Digital Noise, where we cover all the latest Blu-ray and DVD titles. Uh, if You'll see on our actual page on oneofus.net, there are images of all the titles that we'll be talking about today. And if you click on one of those titles, it'll take you to an Amazon page where you can buy it. Now, if you buy that title through that page, we get a kickback from that. So that's Ooh. helpful. But not only that, if you buy anything else after starting your Amazon voyage by clicking on one of our images to get to Amazon, we get a kickback on whatever you buy after that, which I still keep wondering, is that some flaw in the system we're exploiting? A uh, flaw or genius? <laughs> so if you've been waiting to pick up all nine billion volumes of, of, of every Criterion title ever, just remember... Go through one of us.net to buy it, please. That Thank is you. the starting point. Yep. Also, of course, we've got our subscriber uh, incentives are now up. We're divided up into four tiers that you can go through, that you get all sorts of bonus things. Make sure if you're intending on becoming a subscriber, which we so appreciate, that you go ahead and register for the forums because a lot of the added bonuses are going to be hidden in special forum rooms just for you. So that's kind of exciting. I know. We it's got like, It's like a, a constant treasure hunt. We've got all sorts of stuff that's going to be popping up in there, including one of our latest things we're trying to do. We've been saving up some bloopers along the way. Oh, and weird stuff that's happened that I'm recording when I wasn't supposed to be on various <laughs> shows. So those are going to be thrown into there that as well. That time we all did it in our pants. 
No. No. That, one's, that, one, that one has been destroyed utterly. <laughs> Plus, it doesn't work well on radio anyway, so... No, right? I know. I, I, you know, I have to add sound effects, and then I just relive it, and it's not <laughs> not any good at all. Well, you know what? It is... I can't remember the exact words that Brian says, but it's time to open up uh, that bag of mail that we get every week, and uh, you know what? I'm just going to play the sound. The Got mail. That's right. Thank you very much. Okay, so we are going to look at some of the questions we got. Sorry it was so last minute this week, but I'm going to let Richard pick the questions. Ooh. Ah, There's mm. so many good ones to choose from. Ooh. Oh, I like this one. Oh, Patrick Fallon, it is your lucky day. Uh, <laughs> what are some of your favorite season finales? Oh, good Ooh. question. Um, season finales, mind you, not necessarily show finales. I've said that I've answered this before in the distant past, but I still think the greatest season finale of all time is Star Trek Next Generation, The Best of Both Worlds, Part One, that ends with Lo- Picard as Locutius of Borg turning towards the camera and, and telling them to prepare to be assimilated. And the music swells and the camera pans up to Riker and he just says, Fire! <laughs> like, ah! I think I screamed out loud when that episode aired because I realized it was going to be f- four months or so before I figured out what happened after that whereas I, i'm gonna go for something else in the star trek franchise um deep space nine i think it was season four and it's the point where the federation is kicked off the station and you really realize oh hang on no this isn't about the federation on on deep space nine this is about the station this is about the bajorans it's about the cardassians this is about this place being a locus that everything that's going on. And you know that the next season has to be a pivotal change because you're dealing with an insurgent force who no longer controls their own space station. And it's wonderful. Uh, it's so beautifully handled. And it changed the series after that. It wasn't like a... It wasn't like, God bless it, but, you know, uh, Voyager, which did the same thing <laughs> and went, oh, we're going to have the marquee and they're going to be dangerous. And it's like, oh, no, they're just going to be like everybody else in Starfleet. And it, yeah. you know, it didn't have the guts of its convictions, whereas I think DS9 did. And that was a, a moment where you go, no, this is this is something changing the show. And to I be think fair, that's a good season in the Federation version of the future, even terrorists are incredibly polite and amenable. Oh, they're very cuddly. <laughs> they're, they're just lovely people with mild, mild points of disagreement and bombs. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but one of the things that bothered me right off the bat from Voyager 2, because the first episode set up for like, you know, this being very contentious all the way through. And then it was like, it got brought up every once in a while. It was like, what? These guys easily fit into their roles on the ship. Yeah. Like, there was no, there was no tension on what should have been the obvious tension on that show. Which yeah. is such a, just a ball drop of, of magnificent proportions. Yeah. They had to bring in a alien chick with big boobs to save that show. Which every I five thought, minutes. Which in fact they did. I thought once seven of nine joined it, I thought it, it got considerably better. Well, it couldn't have got much more boring. No. No, it really couldn't have. Um, I will throw in as well, one of my favorite season enders, which was actually ended up being the finale for a show, which a lot of people list on their least favorite show endings ever, but I still think it was so great and irritating because we never did find out what happened, was Twin Peaks. Yeah. The end of that show with, uh, you know, the Dale Cooper possessed by Bob was like such a holy shit moment <laughs> of a season finale <laughs> that, yeah, still no ending. I still, there's still that part of me that's like, you know... 
so many, most of the people involved with that show are still alive. It's the kind of show, especially considering the stuff we saw in the prequel movie, that you could pick up 20 years later and go, this much time has passed, and now we're showing what's happening now. You know, bring David Bowie back. and uh, what was Who the, looks the same. Who was the other musician that was in it? Um, oh, um, uh, the guy who did the one of the... the, uh, the yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Him. Yeah, him. This isn't the music cast. This is Digiloids. Thank you very much. Don't expect me to know this stuff. Oh, right. Okay. But we're not here. That's nothing to do with the question. I would so. also say, uh, uh, talking for the uh, the British audience, um, the season finale in Doctor Who when Adric dies. This is old school Doctor Who, not renumbered. I just watched that episode recently. Yeah, and it's, it's superb because you don't see it coming. You don't think, oh, they never killed off Doctor Who companions. They went home. And instead, he crashed a spaceship into, into the Earth uh, and brings about the end of the dinosaurs. So you go, well, hang on, this is really important. He has to do it. But it's really sad. And it yeah. comes out of complete left field at a point where that series did not kill characters. So you're kind of going, hang on, the game changed. That was, that was really beautiful. And I think in a lot of ways that, you know, Presage what happens in contemporary Doctor Who that you know you can kill characters off they don't have to survive bad True. things can happen to 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 assist and now bad things happen to almost all of them oh, so yeah. they don't necessarily die but you generally speaking your tenure with the doctor does not end at the happiest of all terms well mickey went off and made that terrible movie about the alien in the warehouse what movie was that oh uh, it's like unit 17 or something oh, truly right. yeah. truly truly abysmal well, in fact he's appeared in a lot of not so, not great so movies, good stuff but no. i keep rooting for him <laughs> give it a shot you never know <laughs> uh okay what's the next question richard Ooh, a uh, couple that are a bit litigious uh oh uh, oh i'm gonna go with this michael ishmael mccall oh bless you what was your favorite theater experience as a kid Okay, so we can just rule out Star Wars because that's the obvious answer. <laughs> no, because I'm because because no, I I will make my defense for a moment, but you go ahead first. Oh, um, uh, you know, it was probably the first time I discovered dinosaurs, which was before that, seeing one million years BC. Too young to appreciate the assets of Raquel Welch, but uh, still, just being assets, <laughs> madam. Yeah, right. <laughs> myth, myth. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, um, I was just so blown away by big... It was my first experience with monsters or horror on any level, and I was just terrified and intrigued and could not stop talking about them for, like, four years after that. In fact, I still have, like, the giant book of dinosaurs that was, like, actually not really for laymen. <laughs> but it was, like, the whole history of them in film and, and television. And I remember, like, just looking at the pictures and not really understanding what the text was talking about as a kid, repeatedly. <laughs> okay, if we're going to take Star Wars off the counter... Off the I, counter, I, too I, obvious... Uh, well, no, but it was great because I went with my grandmother and we had fish and chips beforehand. I remember that very clearly, uh, as, as clearly as the film. And I even remember the, uh, there was a little preview film about uh, dune buggies in uh, California that showed beforehand. Wow, y'all had preview films about Yeah, we had preview films. What was the newsreel about? <laughs> <laughs> Kaiser had stolen all our 20s. Um, Simpsons reference. There you go. There's, there's one for the cheap seats. So I will have to go for um, going with... Uh, my brother and my two sisters to go see The Jungle Book. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, when I was very, very small, and we went to a matinee screening, and it was the Macclesfield Majestic, which was this great old-school picture house. Um, I 
I can't, I can't have been more than five at the time. I really couldn't have. And I remember we got wine gums, which is this great traditional British chewy sweet thing, and we shared a packet of wine gums. Um, <laughs> and I think it was the, it may have been the first time I actually went to the cinema. I may, I may have seen something in the cinema beforehand, but I just remember it being this just really kind of magical, fun, communal, but individual experience. And yeah, it really, it still really stands out for me going to see the Jungle Book, and I loved you know all the sequences. Uh, Baloo is still one of my favorite DC uh, characters Shere Khan, ever. Shere Khan was just I, I first time I went. Villains can be really cool. Yeah, with Shere Khan, that that is I, that is accurate, sir. Yeah. I will hand you that. Thank you. Although I'm still a little confused about wine gums. I'm like, is that like something? Is that made from our otter pools? I don't know. I, I, well, that's what what's powered with them. Um, <laughs> but no, they're um, they're these little. Sweets and they st- they taste lightly of whatever it, uh, alcoholic beverage they're supposed to taste of. So there's one that's like port and there's sherry and really deer. Yeah, they're, they're, and they I, give them to kids. Yeah. Wow, you guys are weird. Well, we're also borderline alcoholics most of our lives. So uh, <laughs> you know, you think if any city would get that and adopt these principles, it would be Austin, Texas. Yeah, but no. Yeah. I think you can get wine gums at uh, Big Top Candy, but you know. Oh. I'll have to go, because that's, like, the best candy store I've ever been to. It's, if you're ever in Austin, you're on South Congress. Big Top Candy is, like, that, like, like you go in there and you feel like you're having, you're reverted to a dream you had when you were a kid, because it's just kind of surreal. I think they have a portal to a warehouse in 1932, because there's candies that don't exist anymore yeah. in there. It's like, Dr. Ophelia's tooth remover. <laughs> it's like, did you see this candy? It has cocaine and heroin in it? Oh, that <laughs> stuff is good. It's <laughs> legitimate style. <laughs> All right, well, that wraps up the letterbox, and now it bye is bye time. Letters. Bye, letters. It's a close the letterbox there. Put the red flag up. Uh, and it is time to dive into the reviews. Ooh. And we are going to start this one off with a, I don't know if classic is the right word, but you know what, I'll just say it. A horror classic for its own reasons, if not just one scene in particular, and that would be Sleepaway Camp. Oh. <laughs> this is a slasher film in the wake of, you know, Friday the 13th and Halloween uh, that came out in 1983 when they were just like every month there was a new slasher film coming out pretty much, like a low-budget slasher film. And I had never actually seen any of this except the very ending, which is like... <laughs> I think we all have inc- seen the very ending. Incredibly famous at this point with the bizarre twist this movie had. And just this... Like, very awkward special effects they did to make it work that doesn't work, but somehow that just makes it even creepier. Oh, yeah. The uh, ending is just... Oh, it's, it's Yeah, it's totally like, what the fuck just happened? <laughs> Who thought this was a good plan? <laughs> but I gotta tell you, watching the whole thing, this thing is like... If John Waters had been more had been a huge fan of slasher films and yeah. wanted to make one, because there's so many weird sex things going on in this, and really exaggerated characters is like pedophilia and homosexuality and transgenderism, Sexu- sexual dysmorphia. And, yeah, it's, uh, yeah. This is a just. It starts off so conventionally. If you just look at it conventionally and go, oh well, yeah, there's a family and. The dad's taking his kids to uh, to the uh, the lake, and uh, they get hit by a runaway speedboat piloted by some of the kids from the uh, the sleepaway camp next door. Right, from probably a Friday the Thirteenth movie. Yeah, <laughs> don't worry, they'll all be punished by a completely different killer. Uh, and then it just kind of leaps a few years forward, and one of the kids 
who was in the accident, who, who you know, the survivor, she gets sent to that camp, which seems like a brilliant plan. But then it does <laughs> seem that her aunt, who she's living with, uh, is completely insane. And oh, that's yeah. the first of the really over-the-top, ridiculous, crazy performances of the aunt, who would chew the furniture if she was aware that the floor existed. She, is just, <laughs> she seems so high. And it, that's really the first moment when... John Waters? Yeah, right off really? the bat, you're like, this is a character in a John Waters film. Holy shit. Yeah. <laughs> and then, the, you know, the girl and the cousin get, get to the camp, and people start dying. And it's yeah. kind of like, well, you know, the traditional, well, who's doing the killing? And when you get to the resolution, this is one of the few films that actually has a payoff. You can go back to time and time again and really go, nope. Still don't see it coming. It's so berserk. But then when you get to the end, and if you do watch it again, which I actually recommend, which is rare for this stuff, I mean, particularly after, you know, we all sat through um, final exam a couple of weeks ago. Oh, again, yeah. part of that whole swathe of second-rate slasher movies. Yeah, slasher has film nothing. that's not even trying. This is like whoever somebody snuck onto the set of uh, final exam with a de-crazy fire, sucked all the craziness out of that film to make it as bland as possible and dumped it on the set of Sleepaway Camp. No, that would that would actually make a lot of sense. Uh, <laughs> it's the only explanation. I, Sleepaway Camp is almost defies categorization outside of being a slasher film. There's really no other movie like it. No. Um, it's so absurd and, like, you know, even the things it does that are obvious that aren't the answer, like it keeps trying, the movie kind of lamely tries to keep pointing the finger at one character as being the killer, but it's so evident it's not him. Yeah. It's just like they really, he could be wearing a t-shirt with a red herring on it, yeah. you know? Um, but all the characters are so exaggerated and so just downright hysterical to watch them going through the, the their antics at points that I'm not sure if this was intentionally satire or not. I can't tell. I mean, maybe if I'd seen it at the time, in the context of the films that were coming out, but it feels like they knew what they were doing. I, I actually got a chance to talk to uh, Robert Hiltzik, uh, the writer-director. I said, well, you know, how did you get to the final scene? And he said, I had the beginning of the movie and the end of the movie, and I just had to get there. Yeah. And I, like he, he said, just so there's no way he didn't know in the context of where underground film was at, the, at that point. Because this was around the time when Waters was starting to be like... You had to be at least aware of his films. You yeah. couldn't have been a filmmaker at the time and not know this guy's out there doing doing stuff. So the idea that you make a film with a major homosexual um, subplot, uh, you know, transgender politics, and this is this is eighty two, eighty three when this is made. There's no way you don't know this is there. I mean, this yeah. is this is this is the kind of beyond the valley of the dolls of of, ser of of slasher movies, I think is the only way to describe it. Yeah. And the kids in it, A, the performances are really good, uh, particularly for child actors, and B, it's all authentic. It's that, you know, they're all young. There's nobody pulling a Luke Perry in 90210. Some, you know, <laughs> stubble is growing during the uh, the scene. It, it actually does that quite nicely and quite sweetly. And the kids are assholes. Yeah. They really are assholes. It, it might as well be crazy. like meatballs where someone's killing everyone. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's a very self-aware movie. There's no way they didn't know what they were doing. So it's kind of, which is why it's, I think it's had this cult appeal is that it, it it's very self-aware that it's going yeah, we're going to make a slash movie, and we're going to bring all this weird, subversive, counterculture, alternative sexuality stuff into it. Yeah, and it's you've never you know 
And, and then it gets char- payoff in your life. Characters making <gasps> bizarre decisions yeah. and like, you know, I mean, there's no way that as viewed straight as a film, you could call this a good film in any stretch of the imagination. But viewed as something that is, yeah, like you said, somewhat self-aware and is having fun with it, it's actually a riot to yeah. watch. This and, is, I, I stand by the idea that this is a deliberately transgressive movie, not one where they didn't know what they're doing because they, they pull it off so perfectly and the performances are so big and so nuts that... You know, particularly the aunt, and then the final. Yeah, that final shot is somebody going, "Screw it, I've seen we're, that. we're going for it." I've watched that final scene so many times, but I can tell you, watching it in Blu-ray, whole new perspective. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, oh my god. I'm. Uh, can I just say, I'm really proud of us for not giving it away. Yeah, I am. Too. <laughs> you need seriously, like, this is one of those bits, one of these bits of, of slasher cinema where you'll go, "Wow, there was a time when it wasn't all." weird dull sequels and what's really interesting is that there are a slate of sequels yeah. there's, I think there's three more yeah, three. and they go more berserk well, aren't there three sleep, regular ones and then one return to sleepaway camp yeah yeah. there's, yeah. there's two which um, I've heard the sleep- second one is actually kind of fun and the last one's kind of it, the last one is the, the return to sleepaway camp is uh, Robert Hiltzik uh, took the rights back over because he just leased them for the, for the other two and he doesn't like those he was very blunt with me that he's not fond of those yeah so yeah I he knew what he was doing. He knew what he was writing, and I think that makes it all the more wonderful that he got this into cinemas at the time, and nobody realizes, like, oh, it's another slasher. And, of course, you don't reveal what's happening in the slasher, so I think people just went and went, oh, it's going to be interesting and fun and dark, and then it's like, oh, 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 that's different. Yeah. yeah. And you imagine, like, now when we're more comfortable with ideas of, like, you know, some of these sexual things, that very different reaction back then when this came out. Uh, yeah, but at the same time, I don't know whether you could have made this now. I think no, I think true. a lot of studios would have would have blanched at it. Oh, sure. Uh, Absolutely. It's also one of the better shot of the uh, the movies, and also the, uh, of the slasher movies, and the special effects on some of the kills are really good. Are really good. Yeah. Now, of course, this being uh, Shout Factory, they did not, they knew what they had here, so they filled this up with bonus features. Three audio commentaries. One with actors and... Uh, uh, two different ones with the uh, writer directors, one of which is joined by the the main star Felisa Felisa Rose. Um, there is a 45-minute retrospective with new interviews with cast and crew called At the Waterfront After the Social, The Legacy of Sleepaway Camp. Which is really good. Is really it's worth really watching. Yeah. There's a very odd, not sure why it's on here, short film called Judy. Uh, did you did you watch this? Because yeah, I did. Yeah, because it's it's the character, uh, one of the, the the nastiest characters in it, Judy, the who yeah, the, the girl who'd been there the year before, and now she has boobs. Yeah, and now and therefore becomes awful. There's some really weird gender messaging going on. Yeah. Um, and she's you know she's supposed to have survived her on screen death and comes back as this weird vigilante figure. It's super low budget. It's oh, actually yeah. quite. Ent- I mean, it's obviously shot with somebody's VHS camera. It's, it's fifteen minutes long, and it's, it's one of those of like, giggle. what is happening here, and why is there a company called Sleepaway Camp Films? Yes. <laughs> uh, there's a music video which I did not watch. Do you know why this video for Princess is on here? Uh, because uh, one of the cast members made it. Okay, fair so. enough. Uh, there's a scrap book uh the tr- original trailer tv spots rare images and makeup effects from the artist ed french and uh, a demonstration of the 2k film scan process to show how they are upgrading these things to make them look thrilling better. <laughs> yeah i know right but some people like the technical stuff so I, yeah do? I, I don't think there's anybody out there who went hey oh that's that's the deal breaker they've got a 2k uh, something like 2k uh, uh, transfers on here right behind the disc oh it's nice of them but it's not you know 
Well, while we're talking about horror movies, let's go on to a movie that's horrible, uh, at least in my head, uh, uh, look at it, which is House in the Alley. Uh, this is, what is this, uh, this Vietnamese, I believe? Yes. Vietnamese film, filmed in, you know, high def, but very cheap high def. Like one of those that looks like, kind of looks like the short film from the extras on Sleepaway <laughs> Camp. Uh, about this couple who are having it. Like in the beginning, we see, you know, a bunch of dark, rainy alleys and this person running along through it who gets rushed into this really weird, shitty place, and this woman who's giving birth, but the whole room's just covered with blood, and clearly something has gone wrong. Flash to later, she had a stillborn child, and she does not want to... It's like sitting in a little container at the foot of their bed. The dead baby. (laughs) Which, you know, right there you go, I'm sorry, you can't keep the dead baby. I'm I'm pretty sure that even in Vietnam, Vietnam, there's probably laws against it. I would say it's censor regulations. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, but the husband is doing his best to like, you know, tiptoe around and help her out. She's kind of gradually losing it. And more and more so as the movie goes on, it's not clear what's happening. The father keeps hearing like noises of children running around. I mean, it looks like you're building to a pretty typical J horror ripoff. Uh, and ultimately that's all I'm able to say about this. It feels like a poor J horror knockoff. I mean, it's not terrible. But there's nothing that makes you go, well, that was worth it. That was, you know, there's no innovation here. There's lots of, you know, running noises. And, and I, the the one great source of entertainment in this whole film was that uh, the husband slash um, uh, uh, father figure uh, falls off of stuff all the time. Oh, man, he is he, so clumsy. They go to that well, like, he, he tries to <laughs> climb up on the roof because he keeps hearing weird noises and he keeps climbing up and then sees, like, a glimpse of something and goes, ah! And then, like, the fourth time he falls off, you're like, how it, How are you not learning? Yeah, like, right. Aren't you he's, expecting that the, there's going to be something weird up there At right the now? very least, just stop climbing. Or, or get a ladder. Something. Anything. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's so predictable. Um, also, it does... The worst end of narrative info dump I think I've ever seen outside of Spider-Man 3. <laughs> um, yeah, literally, little old lady turns up and explains everything. Oh, it's like, why did nobody think to ask? And there's no reason that like she gives this information. She, it literally is like the old butler coming out at, at the end of Spider-Man 3 going, ah, and here's all the stuff you didn't know that explains why this film has nothing to do with the rest of the franchise. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's just... I mean, it, it it's paid the bills for some actors, I guess, but it, it, there's really nothing... Why did Scream Factory pick this up, is my I question. I have no idea. They've made a couple of, of contemporary acquisitions that I'm a little bit baffled it's by. It's so odd, dark, because... Dark, um, uh, dark Shadows? Uh, yeah, I yeah, believe so. Yeah, a few weeks Which ago, was, was, French horror. Yeah, it was very, no good. Like a cheap French knockoff of... Um, Skyline. Yeah, I'm not really sure. This is not something that's screamed out for acquisition. I mean, I'm glad that there's a Vietnamese horror market. Yeah. Huzzah. But, um, you know, you should wait Is this the best to... thing they're producing? I hope not. You should wait to get the one that's actually good. Yeah. Because this is decidedly not. Poor CG effects as well. Like, really silly. Just, like, some of the most trite, tired scare techniques in this thing I've seen in I don't even know how long. There's nothing to recommend this unless you're an absolute completist on Vietnamese J-horror knockoffs. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. 
All right. Well, let's not Sorry, waste Vietnam. too much time on that and waste our time on Independence Disaster because all you buddy <laughs> because the Sci-Fi Channel realized, hey, did we ever do an Independence Day satire? <laughs> not even satire, ripoff. Oh God. Uh, Independence Disaster. Yes. This is them just blatantly ripping off Independence Day on so many levels. I mean, honestly, at this point, are, does anybody have any emotional feelings about that happening? No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it's because of all the talk in the news of the possibility of ID4-2 uh, maybe or maybe not happening. With you, you mean you've got a preemptive mockbuster? <laughs> right? Oh, God. Um, but the surprising thing about this is for a Sci-Fi Channel knockoff film... I mean, it's certainly not good, but it's much not less not good than your average sci-fi channel <laughs> release. I mean, it was tolerably entertaining on a hungover Sunday, is like I like I how to like I put it, you know, like uh, I would turn the channel, but it seems like way too much effort to look for something else. Okay, so from a scale from Frankenfish to SS Doom Trooper. <laughs> Uh, Which Frankenfish being the high. I haven't seen Frankenfish. Oh, you haven't? Is that a good one? That's actually uh, scripted by an old friend in these quarters, Simon Barrett. Oh. oh the Horrible Die and your next one. Uh, Sharktopus was my favorite, probably, of the Sci-Fi Channel ones. And that's one of those because it's just so absurd. I just ended up having fun with it. But, I mean, that was one of the ones Corman produced. And yeah. it seems like the Corman produced ones are generally a little better than the ones that he, he did. He still has a degree of shame. <laughs> So yeah. he's so he's prepared to put a little bit more evidence. So I'm gonna, you know, how blatant, other than the name, which is just lazy, uh, but awesome. Yeah. You know, it's like it's like not even trying, and then not even trying to not even try. Uh, how much of a blatant ripoff of Independence Day is this? Or did you actually have to go back and watch Independence Day because it's been so long since you've seen no, it? No, no, I actually am embarrassed to admit I kind of know Independence Day by heart. Oh, <laughs> no, there's no shame in this room, only truth. I'm just saying, I still look at Independence Day as a, you know, if you can take out the fact that it's filled with plot holes, a really fun Hollywood blockbuster. There's a plot? There's a plot! Aliens turn up, blow stuff up, Jeff Goldblum pretends that you can you can hack an alien computer <laughs> using an apple. <laughs> well, anyway, Tom Everett Scott, <laughs> poor Tom Everett Scott, he looked really? like he was going to have a huge career or after career. that thing you do, you know? Oh. You're like, he was so good in that movie. But here he plays the President of the United States. <laughs> Who's on Air Force One for because he's going to... So his, cheap Bill Pullman is what you say. A really cheap Pull, Bill Aww. Pullman in this case. They even, like, his inspirational speech moment in here is, like, embarrassing. You're just like, it's not his fault. They wrote a terrible, like, script for him to say. You're like, Aww. this was supposed to match up to Bull, Pullman's, and I still think is great, inspirational speech in Independence Day. <laughs> oh, no, I will say that his greatest uh, inspirational speech is in singles uh, when he tells what's face that her boobs are okay. What's your favorite Bill Pullman movie? Oh. I'm going to have to go with either Serpent in the Rainbow or Zero Charisma. Or not Zero Charisma, Zero Effect. Uh, oh, yeah, I've, I've got to go with Serpent in the Rainbow. That's a gooder. It's a great film. Uh, anyway, he, Tom Everett Scott is president of the United States. He's flying across the country in Air Force One because he's going to his home, hometown to visit with his estranged brother and his son, who's already there for the celebration and a contest winner at the local high school who got a chance to meet the president. And then the son's, she's not his girlfriend yet, but clearly that's where the script is going, girl. Uh, when suddenly giant drills burst up through the earth out of nowhere and all these Something don't come from outer space. What a twist! Well, see, but they also come from outer space. Not uh, drills, but these little sort of like a—they're they, like 
Phantasm, the balls from Phantasm Mark II, <laughs> where they've got like a spitting, like cutting wheel in the middle of them that are flying around all over. And this is happening all over the world, but the president can't land. The ship crashes. Uh, he survives, but everybody thinks he's dead. The vice president, who's kind of a douche, <laughs> takes over and is just like, even though the president just told him, no, do not make an aggressive move on these things yet. We don't know what their capabilities are. He immediately is like, start throwing everything we have at them. Uh, and of course, you know, just watching this thing, it's clear that it's up to the kids and a SETI technician who we start the movie with, with the exact scene from Independence Day. The exact scene with like, wait, some weird signal. What is this? Call the boss. Uh, Is up to say that. I mean, the the weirdest decision they make in here is like, it's not 30 minutes into this film when they show you how they're going to beat the aliens. And the rest of the movie's tension is just like, when can we find an open phone line to tell someone about it? Pretty much. <laughs> like, wait, hey, if they were in Austin on a cell phone, they'd never get through to anybody. Be true. Like wandering around going, really? really? Not, a, not if they have AT&T or Sprint. Um, you know, the effects are bad, but they're not bad on the level of something like Sharktopus or a lot of those ripoffs where they are like, you know what? People want this to look bad. They're not going for that. They're doing the best job they can with sci-fi channel money, which is, is still far from great. But it's acceptable, I suppose. <laughs> the like watching Tom Everett Scott almost wince right before he has to say these lines that are so poorly written, but still trying to give it his, his all. It's tolerably entertaining. Is like this I one said. of these scripts that explains why my actors turn to drugs? It, it, you know, they could probably use it that way later if they wanted to. <laughs> but either way, Independence Day disaster. It, well, it's not quite a disaster. Uh, I guess. I guess, you know, I'm just viewing it in the context of a sci-fi channel movie. You have to. Because if this had come out in theaters, I would have been like, go fuck yourself. <laughs> <laughs> but in the, the context of a sci-fi channel movie, it's not anywhere near as bad as it could have been. Faint praise. <sighs> Faint praise indeed. Well, let's talk about another horror feature. I believe this was horror, right? 24 Exposures? I did not get to see this Ooh. one. This is all you. So. This, this is... Um... Joe Swanberg. Yeah, we just loved his movie Drinking Buddies. I love so I, good. I love Drinking Buddies. Uh, I'm a big fan of early Joe Swanberg. His really experimental stuff, like How, uh, How It Takes the Stairs. Uh, you know, this is the guy that you know, discovered Greta Gerwig. You know, it, it, I, I'm a big advocate for his work. This is nothing like Drinking Buddies. This is early, low-key, lo-fi Joe Swanberg going right back to his roots. It's a very, very peculiar art film. Yes, if you're listening and the words art film uh, <laughs> fill you with dread, just click ahead. Um, it's kind of a, a spiritual sequel to Silver Bullets, which was the film he did with Ty West uh, about a guy who's making a horror film. And a lot of that came from him having real artistic block. This is uh, actually mentioned before. Uh, Simon Barrett. Uh, who wrote um, Your Next, next. A Horrible Way to Die. And the upcoming The Guest, which when you get a chance to see it, fucking see it. See it. So good. Um, and uh, his longtime creative partner, Adam Wingard. Uh, and the characters they play in the typical way of, of um, Joe Swanberg films are pretty autobiographical. Uh, Adam Wingard plays a photographer who does these weird kind of very rapey implied fetish photo shoots okay and sleeps with his models um 
When I was a kid, at some point, somebody went, like you know, just going into puberty, an older kid told me, "Did you know that at Penthouse, one of the deals is the the reason they have so many great photographers is because they get to sleep with every single one of the models that's in their contract." And I believed that shit for like two years. I was like, "I better go learn about photography." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not true. Not true. Not true. As it turned out, um, so. Although I suspect there's still a lot of uh, photographer model sleeping with going on. But American still. Apparel, allegedly. <laughs> um, but uh, Simon Barrett, by contrast, plays a police officer who actually deals with dead bodies. Um, and it's kind of, it's, you know, in the, in the way of early Swanberg films, I mean, he only made this uh, last year, and it really is a ricochet return to that form for him. Um, it's formless, it's improvised, um, it doesn't really come to a resolution, it asks a lot of questions. Barrett and Wingard are great together, they have this easy comfort around each other, and there's this great scene um, where they're in a bar and they're discussing why people would want to take photographs of horrible things. And it's really about, well, why do we like horror films? Why do we like graphic Images. A valid question. And it's a fascinating discussion, particularly because at one point Simon Barrett goes, goes, well, yeah, why not just take pictures of pretty flowers instead? (laughs) What's so bad with that? And Wingard's response is is fascinating. And it's this whole discussion of, well, anybody can take a picture of a flower and they can get lucky and it's a great shot. But to create something that is ugly and make it beautiful is a real artistic challenge. And you kind of think, huh, okay. It's a yep. really interesting discussion. There's not a lot of plot here. It it's one of those it's very odd it, things with the modern uh, horror community. This group of guys that they trade off being actors and, yeah. in each other's films, like Adam Wingard and Simon Barrett. Are, you, know, you said they both play the stars in this, and yet they're known for being writer and director, not actors. <laughs> yeah, and then Swanberg's in Your Next. Yep. He's in A Horrible Way to Die. Yep. I mean, they, uh, it's really kind of this this little cadre of people who bounce in and out of each other's projects. Ty West, yeah. you know, the, the, this whole group of people. Anybody who was in a VHS film, yeah. who directed one of those, <laughs> is part of that gang <laughs> but this is you know this is a if you like early swanberg i think you'll like this if you don't like early swanberg uh you'll hate this if you've only seen drinking buddies this may not be your entry point to early but swanberg drink, drinking buddies is uh, his con- a rare conventional film for him yeah. relatively speaking whereas this sounds like it's much more of a very artistic very experimental very sort very of like so. thought experiment even yeah. of a film but then he's coming back around to kind of slightly more conventional uh, stuff with uh, Happy Christmas which is his next film with Anna Kendrick which is a little bit more lo-fi than Drinking Buddies was um, he actually shot it on 16 mil huh uh, be- and I asked him why he did that and he said because if I want to make a film in 16 mil in five years time I probably won't be able to get the stock Right. So this is my last chance to shoot on 16 mil. Now, and just it's just like the, just so I can say I made a film on 16 mil. Just like, the hell oh, of it. That, that's that's lovely. That's it's so quaint. charming. <laughs> um, yeah, I like this is going to be very divisive. And if you're not in the mood for a a weird nudity filled art house meditation on horror and and horror erotica, you really really don't want to watch this film. But it, you know, I I, I, I it's 70 odd minutes of Swanberg 
kind of pushing a button and, and saying, well, what, how do we feel about it? And not necessarily coming up with answers that are easy yeah. or even with answers or answers that make people feel comfortable about themselves. You know, I, I think he's he's still one of the more challenging film directors, which in a way I'm really glad for after Drinking Buddies. I love Drinking Buddies, but I didn't want him to go, you know what, I'm not doing that kind of stuff anymore. Yeah. This really is him saying to his fan base and, and people who followed his work for a long time, I can still do this and it's still meaningful in the way that my earlier works were. Fair enough. Well, speaking of uh, weird, arty films with lots of nudity that you won't understand, <laughs> let's talk about Blue Movie. Uh, Blue, wow. Uh, Kino is just determined to plunge through the depth of Eurosleeve cinema yeah. and release every last film they can find, regardless of how worthy they may or may not be of actually fixing up and releasing. I guess, you know, different strokes, as it were. A lot of the stuff I rave about from Scream Factory of re-releases is stuff people are probably, other people are saying this exact same thing about. Why would you put that out? Uh, Blue Movie, for me, was... As of yet, probably the biggest waste of time of anything I've seen from the Kino re-releases. But then again, I will say this. I don't really get the 70s and 80s erotic film genre. I just don't get it. I'm like, most of it is like very anti-woman. Uh, very, you know, incredibly misogynist, rapey as all get out. Yep. I mean, like, even the only one I think that, that I can even think of that's worth watching, Nine and a Half Weeks, is still really misogynist yeah. at points. And this is, like, that kind of film mixed with you don't have a clue what's going on. Yeah. Um, woman running through Italian forest may or may not have been raped. Very hard to tell. Made both unclear. from the way that it was shot and the way it's edited, but, but then there's supposed to be ambiguity. But don't worry, there are actual on-screen rapes coming up. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, Italy. What was wrong with you? Um, <laughs> Lots of things, apparently. Well, as far as I was concerned, only Giallo and horror was the only thing they were getting right in the 70s and 80s. Oh, and then some really good uh, westerns. That's true. Yeah, some really good gonna, westerns. This is just a, you know, it's kind of like 24 Exposures in that it is, you know, about a photographer who's obsessed with horrible, morbid images and sexuality, but he's just a scumbag and you're not supposed, to, it's very unclear how you're supposed to feel about him. Characters wander in and out yeah. uh, and, with no real and are, purpose. Are there after they've been told not to be there anymore and you're like, but why are they there now? Is there, is there a, should there be a scene missing frame? You Just know? Some profoundly unerotic sequences there's a lot of pooping yeah yeah there's yeah, a, uh, my, more than should be in any film that's labeled as erotic yeah <laughs> i mean my my feeling about this is it's like a porn director and the director i can't remember his name um because it's gonna drive me mad for a uh, few seconds vim verstappen no that's that no. i think that's a different blue movie is it there's a there's a multitude of blue movies did i get it wrong yeah, I th- are you sure? Because yeah. this says it's 1971, and that says it's 1971. So, yeah, I th- no, I think he's an Italian director. Uh, yes, Alberto Cavalloni. Oh, you're right. Yep, there's Al- so Alberto many Cavalloni. of this. Like it's the well, like I think a thousand people did films called Blue Movie, probably, um, and some of them were just literally we're born. just porn. Yeah, yeah, we're just a real yeah, just porn. Uh, I think he was trying to do something like a contemporary Sallow uh, about. Well, Thanatos and Eros and points about stuff and poop. 
Uh, and <laughs> really? Points about poop. That's going to be our new show on one of us. Now, points about poop. Whatever happened to ratemypoop.com? Um, this is. Please tell me that's not a real thing. That was a real thing. Oh. Um, this just really goes nowhere. Does it in a very disturbing way, and it doesn't really pay off. It's also really clear that at some point, Cavalloni went. Well, you know, I'm implying some sex, but I really just have to have some sex in there. So there is a um, a, a swift handy sequence that is oh, yeah. clearly inset from another film. Yeah. It's edited with an axe. It's just everything that you really don't care about in Italian cinema of that era distilled into one... You know, fairly disturbing, and not in an interesting way disturbing. This is not a Serbian film. This is just boring. Yeah, you know, just I mean, boring. Just like, I mean, really, if you're like only watching this because you like to see '70s porn, there's a lot of '70s porn online you can see for free that is actual porn. Yeah. that is still much better than anything in this film. It's really just <laughs> dull. Yeah, you know, and it, it, there's a lot of kind of weird debasement of characters, and all the characters are horrible. It has an anti-resolution. Yeah, uh, it, you I didn't going, get all the way through it. I gave up thirty minutes from the end. I, I like, stuck I it out to the end, and it finished. So speak- and I went, "What happened? What happened? Why is that character there?" Didn't you go away? Aren't you dead? Aren't you covered in poop? There's a lot of poop. It's <laughs> real. The poop bit is the bit where I'm going. Oh, I'm just powering through this at the moment. Right. There's going to be like half a dozen fetishists. Um, who are probably going to go, this is the best film ever. Uh, but it's it's really just... It's it's kind of the art house version of Two Girls, One Cup. There's, yep. kind of, there's somebody out there is being dared to watch this. And I, that's I, what it feels like. Like it was made uh, like to dare somebody to watch it, and that's it. Because I don't know how you got all the way through it. Well, I'll say this much. I, you know, uh, the, the director is uh, No Pasolini. No. I mean, it really... It, in a way, it just proves how great a piece of art Sallow is. That you go, all these horrible things happen, but I feel like I'm a better person for having watched this. I watched this and I went, all these things happened and then some other stuff happened. And I really wish I hadn't watched this because I had better things to do. Not uh, that I felt dirty or anything. Are you a worse person just for like, having watched it? <laughs> uh, I think my, my tolerance for really bad, uh, overly arty Italian erotica has dropped. Yeah, me too. Which and, may make me a better person. I'm not sure. Kino apparently thinks this is great because they actually put some extra features on this thing, which is so unnecessary. It's unbelievable. There's deleted scenes from the extended Italian cut. Why they, Which why look like... Crap. Yeah, which yeah, which are are coming from I believe a super eight millimeter print. So and it's not that's that super. The only version of it they've got, as well as a forty three minute feature called uh, Nocturno presents Blue Extreme, uh, which is a featurette with interviews with the cast and crew. Which is actually the best thing on the disc. Yeah, it's actually quite interesting. Uh, a not, lot of regret. Well, <laughs> a lot of it is also very contradictory memories of what did and didn't happen on the set. So, you know, there's people saying there was real penetration, other people saying, yeah, nobody was really that excited by the film. It was kind of boring. And one of the actors going, well, of course I got excited when she put her, her mouth name a junk, but, you know, <laughs> we, we're still trying to get through the scene. You know? <laughs> yeah, like, it's, not, it's just oh. not that exciting to be surrounded by a casting crew and filming a sex scene unless that's what you do for a living and you have to tune all that shit out. Yeah. You know, like I, I still can't figure out how porn actors do it. Like, you know, you're surrounded by like 20 people. How in the hell do you maintain an erection? 
<laughs> Fluffers. Yeah, I guess. There we go. Uh, either that or they have a rib taken out and put oh. in there. Um, all right, so let's, you know what, with the the less said the better at this point. We've, we've said everything that needs to be said about Ever. the Blue Movie. For everybody. Uh, let's talk about an indie uh, film that actually is really worth your time. Oh, yes. And this is the 2013 black comedy thriller Cheap Thrills, directed by E.L. Katz. Now, I got to see this at South by Southwest, where it blew my shit away. Yeah. Like one of those... Wow, this may be in the top ten of greatest midnight movies I have yet to see. With yeah. this wonderful moment at the ending with just the... You know, sometimes it's not anything complex. It's just a simple technique thing. And it's the way they blast the full screen, the title of the film, at that point where the film really couldn't get any crazier at the end. And it's a moment to stand up and just applaud and cheer and throw yeah. things. <laughs> it's just amazing. Uh, this has been acquired by Drafthouse Films. So you can get it through them, which means, of course, you're getting a solid Blu-ray release because those guys tend to do some pretty good stuff uh, assembling their their, uh, their their features. The story here follows Craig, played by the great Pat Healy, Woo-hoo. who we're seeing in more and more stuff now. Nice. By the way, you guys, if you look back through Infestation on the site, oneofus.net, there's an interview with Brian Salisbury and Pat Healy at Fantastic Fest about the film that is really funny. Um, but he plays an auto mechanic. He's lost his job. He can't pay his rent. His light, you know, he's, he's going to be kicked out of his, his house. So he's like, you do, he does what you do. You go to a bar. <laughs> uh, and there he meets somebody from his old high school, a guy, uh, Vince, played by Ethan Embry. God, we haven't seen him for a while. <laughs> what happened? He seemed like he was one of those actors who was like, you were going to be an A-list in four years. After and he never. Just never jailed. He looks so different now. He really does. Uh, but he is buff. He really, yes, he is. I, I think he's buffing his way up to trying to be like a respected actor again. Yeah, possibly. More luck to, to him because I always thought he was a really good actor and he's got a ton of charisma and he does here as well, although he's kind of playing a scumbag, um, which, you know, Craig sees right off the bat, but he's not really in a position to judge. <laughs> but they get kind of suckered into hanging out in a corner booth with this ridiculously rich couple, Colin and Violet, played by David Ketchner and Sarah Paxton, who proceed to start, you know, doing little bar bet dares with them to do things. Okay, I'll give you $100 right now if you go do this. You know, stuff that, like, you and I would probably do if we were dead broke. And eventually, you know, why don't you guys, let's keep this party going. Come back to our our mansion, our palatial estate, and we will just keep partying through the night. And, you know, both these guys are like... Okay, this is a little weird, a little freaky. These guys are very strange people, but, you know, if they're going to keep giving us money for shit, they both need it. So as they follow them back there, the dares get more and more elaborate, get more and more dangerous. They start setting upon each other, uh, Craig and Vince, because it's really whoever claims it first. You know, whoever does the dare first gets to it. And they're both so desperate for money, it leads into some really bizarre scenarios. Yeah. This thing is just, I mean, it is bloody, and it is funny, and it is shocking, but it's shocking. It's the kind of shocking that you can't help but laugh while you're being shocked. Yeah. Just top quality entertainment. I'm so glad this is finally coming out on, on Blu-ray. This is this is the blackest of black comedies, and it's held together by the fact that, you know, everybody in it is charming at some level. Yeah. Uh, you know, Paxton and Healy work together on The Innkeepers, which... I, I love me too. Uh, you know, Ethan Embry is just great. The real surprise, I think, is David Kochner, who oh, yeah. is phenomenal in this. He brings that same kind of big, you know, overbearing, weird loudness that he did so well in the Anchorman films, but brings it with this kind of twist of malice that you don't see coming, but it's still charming. And you're like, 
I kind of like all these people because if you didn't like uh, the rich couple, you wouldn't be able to go, yeah, I could see how these guys would hang around with them tonight. They'd just take the money and disappear. Yeah. Like you, you, they, they have this seductive quality about it. And, you know, Coachner carries a lot of that while, while um, Sarah Paxton is in the background a lot, or seemingly the background. But you realize, like, how much she's manipulating the, all three guys around her. It is, you know, it's very dark. It escalates beautifully. This is E.L. Katz's first film's director. And he just really grows the threat and the sense of desperation around these two guys so beautifully and so perfectly paced. Um, you know, this was a small, intense shoot. I think it was, I want to say it was like 10 days. This yeah, it was really, very really. Yeah. And it was, it was obviously, it's an actor's film. Yeah. It totally is. Because as you said, if you don't believe these people, if you don't still like them for their charisma, if you're not still really drawn into this world, it would not work. And it does. And it's David Ketchner's best performance oh, yeah. in anything he's done. I mean, this, if he was a nobody, if you'd never heard of him, this would be a star making performance. Yeah. We'd go like, now he's on your radar. This is, uh, and it's basically a four-hander. It's just that, those four cast members. They start off in a bar and then they go to the mansion. Yeah. And it, it has this wonderful sense of claustrophobia. And you think, well, okay, you make those decisions because you're drunk and you've been hanging around with these people and you're in their house. And then the mo- the slightest crack of in, of the real world coming in, you you go, why would you do this? It's like, ah, oh, because you're not in the real world. You're in this suspended bubble. And it's a really interesting morality tale about power and money and perspective and how people lose all of those and are so get so desperate. It's, I mean, it's a really quietly, powerfully political film. Absolutely. And the only shame about this movie at all is that inevitably whoever owns the rights to this is probably going to try and pump out a sequel at some point yeah. that will have a totally different cast and will just not be able to capture that magic. We'll nope. just try and repeat it as almost basically a remake with making the, some of the stuff more shocking and more bloody and it just won't work. Yeah. Uh, but this is, you know, I mean, this is my pick of the week. I, yeah. I think this is just phenomenal stuff. It, comes with a commentary with the director and Pat Healy, uh, which both those guys are, are, you know, very easy to talk to. So I can only imagine that's a lot of fun. There's a, a 40 minute, the making of cheap thrills, very comprehensive to take a look at. It was a 12 day shoot, apparently from beginning to end with a uh, one year later, apparently it's got a little coda at the Los Angeles premiere uh, where, you know, it's direct interviews on the fly instead of po- after the fact, you know, that sort of thing. And there's cheap thrills at fantastic fest in 2013. I was not at the first screening, so I didn't. I missed this happening. I was at the second screening, but uh, apparently they got up there and they paid the audience money to take bets for crazy stuff. I was like, well, somebody... talk about it. Talk about a kind of like uh, insulated bubble away from reality, ladled with fuel and money. Oh yeah, fantastic fest. Uh, although not much money, yeah. only with booze. <laughs> yeah. Well, like, I'm sorry, I didn't see it at Fantastic Fest. I saw it at South by Southwest, so yeah. I didn't see this happening. But um, one of them got a tattoo on their rear end. Somebody ate a popsicle covered with crickets, uh, and somebody dipped their balls in hot sauce, which I wouldn't, don't know if that would would that be apparently bad? yeah apparently that was quite bad okay all right because i didn't know like how are the receptors the nerve ends on there uh, were they apparently sriracha? that one was surprisingly painful i've been reliably informed that there was dunking in milk afterwards wow okay that's not yeah wow i wouldn't i don't know if i i guess i would have taken the bet out of curiosity if enough money was involved plus the milk dunk <laughs> what's the milk dunk but yeah thoroughly thoroughly recommend cheap thrills pick of the week by all means pick it up as you say 
you know what? Let's move from here to uh, overseas and talk about the close second for my pick of the week. Doctor Hello, Who- it's Blighty calling. <laughs> Doctor Who, an adventure in space and time. Uh, this was a surprisingly entertaining, dramatic recreation of the beginnings of Doctor Who, how the show got started, how no one thought it was going to work, dealing with the producer and the director and the writer who find the star, the first Doctor, William Hartnell, who was a cranky old coot. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Who was like, really, had kind of reached that point in his career. He wasn't entirely sure that he was going to have a career anymore. I mean, he was a very... Uh, sorry, the cat is, is has involved himself in some paper on the floor. Muggy! <laughs> you were looking for outtakes. I was looking for outtakes. And now you got one. Uh, William Hartnell was, he was, he really didn't think he was going to be acting anymore, but he kept trying, because he was mainly a TV actor. And there he goes again, back to the paper. Uh, can you move that paper, Richard? <laughs> sorry, folks. Um... See, uh, this is the kind of thing you don't get in the real universe. No, right? No, see, that's why we're the alternative. Uh, David Bradley plays William Hartnell here and does an enormous job. I mean, he is known as Wald- Walter Frey in Game of Thrones. You've seen him, seen him as Filch in uh, Harry Potter. Is that, is that right? He was Filch in Harry Potter, right? Uh, I think so. I think so. Did you say yeah, Argus, Argus Did you Filch. Did say Filch or Felch? No, no, no. Definitely Filch. Although okay. I'm sure there's a porn version of Harry Potter where he's Argus Felch. Uh, um, you know, what makes this work is its heart. As it goes through and you watch uh, William Hartnell, play, once again, who played the first Doctor, uh, his, his heart melting as he turns from this cantankerous old coot who's very skeptical about this entire project to seeing the effect it has on children and his own grandchildren and completely absorbing himself into the role to the point there's a scene I love in this where he is, uh, you know, being told by a new director who's come in, okay, you have to do this. He's like, I can't do this because the lever is on the other side of the TARDIS mechanism. Look, just go ahead and do it. I'm not going to do that. Kids are smart. They're going to know something is wrong. (laughs) You know, where he like, he's got, he's memorized what all the levers on the control panel are actually supposed to do. And just the heartbreak that came with because of old age and because of like medical problems he was having where he, he, had to stop being the doctor. I mean, he didn't have a choice. He he knew it. The studio knew it. And them realizing the show is so incredibly popular, we have got to find a way to keep going and start a second doctor. There's a moment in this film where Hartnell confronts the future. I don't want to be specific about it, really. Oh, tears. Tears. Where he sees, you realize, as sad as he is, that he's going to stop doing this, that this is something that's going to go on and on and on, and children for, and adults who are children, like me, (laughs) for decades to come are going to continue to be entertained by the antics of the Doctor, that, yeah, is totally like the, if you don't cry, I don't know what to tell you. You're you're just wrong. You're You're wrong as a human being. Something's wrong inside of you. I loved the crap out of this thing. And the, one of the other great things it does, um, that this was a radical piece of television for two reasons. One, the producer came to the BBC from ITV, which was, you know, BBC was the BBC, and it's very traditional. And ITV was the, you know, the independent television station. And, it, you know, this would be like going from, you know, the the New York Daily News, and suddenly you're heading up, you're head editor at the, um, the Washington Post. This was just a... a 
an outrage. People were furious that Sidney Newman was sent over. And he was basically just rolling the dice and saying, we'll do crazy stuff. Um, and Verity Lambert, who was the series creator and uh, the original director. The director first woman producer on the BBC. Yeah. Um, which, again, you know, just shows you how big a risk they were taking. They were coming up with something which wasn't just new in its content, but its entire form. And it paid off. And, you know, this is a story that I think science fiction fans in the UK know. Um, And they understand, like, how this changed television, not just in the way that you tell stories, but also in the way that programs could be made. This was watershed television in 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 the most meaningful sense. And they get that. It's not just about Hartnell. It's about the whole thing. Yeah. And, there, you know, like, there's... Verity Lambert kicked the door down. And, you know, she takes absolutely no shit. Jessica Rain is fabulous in this. She oh, really, she's so good. You know, and Brian Cox is uh, Sidney Newman, who is just <sighs> completely over the top, he's, overblown. He's, uh, Harrison Ford, Ford in 41. Yeah. You know, over the Jackie Robinson story. He's like that sort of like, Rah! Yeah. And, <laughs> he, and he really does catch that kind of era of, you know, people like Lou Grade, who was the, the big television producer in the UK for, for decades. You know, that ca- that sense of, like, completely over blue, overblown, cigar-chomping, uh, J. Jonah Jameson star guys, <laughs> who, re- who were real. I mean, you know, Jameson isn't... Uh, he's a stereotype and he's a cliché, but those guys were real. They, you know, they came in and they were, you know, nerdy guys who got by on bombast. And you get that real feeling from Newman, who comes in and, like Lambert, he's the underdog. And you know, they're very honest about how the BBC almost screwed the pooch multiple times on this show. They, yeah. they, made, you know, they didn't it, understand it. Yeah. They didn't see what they... Even when it was starting to get numbers, they were still like, this isn't going to last. Uh, and part of the problem was when it, the first episode aired opposite the JFK assassination yes. happening. And the fight they had to get it rescreened. Yeah. You know, and they, and you know, again, that was, that was Sidney Newman going. And even he didn't really understand the show, but he said, you know what, I believe in the people who are making it. Yeah, and that was you know, it shows the importance of of having producers who will go to bat for you. I think you know it's a in in it's kind of you know cutesy in some ways, and it's obviously made for the the fiftieth anniversary of Doctor Who. But at the same time, it does go you know this almost didn't work. With it's the B being pretty honest about how it almost how it almost threw away the biggest show probably it's ever had. And there's yeah, there's no question that it's, you know, almost triacally at points with the amount of like affection that's built into it for the show. Uh but you know, I mean who is watching this besides Doctor Who fans, quite frankly. Which is the entirety of the population of the UK. Exactly. So. <laughs> um yeah, I I was totally in love with this. One thing that amazed me at the end they showed the pictures of the actual people the actors were playing Every single one of them is dead on. Oh, it's spot on. Like, they... like, holy crap! They look exactly like the, the their original counterparts, with the exception of the actor who comes on towards the end playing Patrick Troughton, Reese Shearsmith, yeah, who Reece... doesn't look a thing like. like him. I think they got Reese Shearsmith because I think he's, he's friends with everybody involved. He's kind of yeah. You know, Reese is a pretty recognizable actor in the UK these days, particularly after a field in England. Um, you know, and he was part of. Um, uh, League of Gentlemen, yeah. Uh, uh, you know, and I think he's he's well known enough that just like let's put a wig on him and it'll be fine. And it's like, I mean, not quite. He's such a small role in it. It's only startling how much he doesn't look like him. Yeah. After seeing how much 
uh, David Bradley does in fact look like William Hartnell yeah. and, and nails the performance. It's also really clear he's wearing a wig. It's yes. a terrible wig. Oh, it's a horrible wig. That's, that's, a re- that's the one mo- letdown moment in the entire thing. One Everything nice little note so I liked was that uh, the guy who plays the, uh, Peter Hawkins, who is, was the original voice of the Daleks and the Cybermen, is played by Nicholas Briggs, who is was the guy who followed Peter Hawkins yes. as the voice of the Daleks that's and the really Cybermen. Yeah. I was like, that's pretty cool. There's a lot of little nods and homages. And this is, this is a, you know, not only is this a great, it's about a 90 minute telemovie yeah uh but also they do include on the on the disc uh, an earthly child. It's yeah, they, yeah, they right? include the first Doctor Who yeah, story. Well, even like a whole separate disc where it's like, hey, it's the it's the Blu-ray of the original Doctor Who Which uh, is like, episode. Thank you, BBC. Yeah, could not ask for more. Yeah, and you also, of course, get a making of uh, featurette on here that's actually kind of nice too, which is more more you know heartfelt memories of growing up watching Doctor Who type of stuff. But you know what? That's who else is this for but people who want to watch that? Absolutely. So, top-notch stuff. We're going to another part of the world, uh, in fact, Hong Kong. We are going to look at Eastern Bandits, also known, originally put out as an inaccurate, an, an inaccurate memoir, which I think is not a great title. That's... It does, <laughs> Eastern Bandits sums it up a lot better, I'll say that much. It, it really seems does. much more spot on. Um, this is, uh, you know, I know you liked this one a lot more than I did. I had very mixed feelings about this, although I thought the cinematography was great, was terrific. But I, I think the problem with this is it wants to be too many things. And it tries to cram all these different movies into such a tight little space, including flashbacks that are often aren't clear that you're watching a flashback until it's been going on for a few minutes. You're like, wait, what the fuck is happening? Oh, wait, this is a flashback. Um... I don't know. You go ahead and give the description of this. Well, movie. It, this tell is the a, plot. Tell this us. is a, a uh, part of that grand uh, genre of Chinese uh, cinema about you know when the Japanese invaded that time. And I'm talking about uh, this is you know the early 20th century Japanese forces in China and a bunch of bandits uh, are merrily wending their way through the country, kidnapping people, causing havoc, and they kidnap this one guy who goes well. Do you not want to be more than just bandits? Wouldn't it be a good idea if you like you fought the Japanese because they're going to come after you anyway? Yeah. Um, Which in and of itself is a trick the movie plays on the bandits and the audience that that is even where this movie is going. Yeah. And it it it's kind of in a lot of there's, there's been a lot of films like this set against that period, which you know the politics of that at the moment, considering that. Uh, Sino-Japanese relations are getting rougher every day, it yeah. seems. So like, there's, there's kind of a little bit of complexity there. Like, mm, hang a, on, we don't need to say the Japanese l- are really terrible a again. A lot folks. of Hong Kong movies coming out in the last two years that are very strongly, like period pieces with very strong anti-Japanese sentiment. Yeah, extremely strong. And it, it does fit into that to a certain degree. Um, I liked this quite a lot because I th- yeah, I've seen a lot of those films. And they've all tried to combine too many things. They've been a history thing, and then you've got to understand the, you know, what was the dynamics of the Tongs in Hong Kong, and you know, all this stuff. And they kind of cram it in, and some of them do it better than others. True. You know, I I think Ip Man did it well. I think this tries to take much more of a Sergio Leone. Yeah, take on it very clearly. Even Dirty Dozen-ish, you yeah. know, where it's like it, the politics aren't... And the Wild Bunch as well. The, the politics and the history aren't that important. Here's the basic outlines of what's happening and why it pisses people off. I, and now let's tell the story. And I think it pulls it off really smoothly. I think it's one of the best fusions of all those elements. Uh, I, you know, it's 
beautifully shot. It is. Uh, that's the one thing I agree with. The set you, pieces. There's there's two or three wonderful set pieces. I think are beautifully choreographed. Oh, beautifully the, the whole idea that they all the the secret like caves structure they live in is like what the Goonies were exploring pretty much. It's this huge elaborate structure and the thing was clearly filmed like sliced in half on a soundstage because there's a series of like a whole action scene as the camera just moves from level to level and back and forth showing like the various fights going on between Japanese soldiers and the bandits that's really well done and pretty cool to watch. And there's a great bank robbery. Yes. There's a, there's a superb bank robbery where where it's really super violent for the opening sequence and then it pulls the rug out from underneath you with something that is actually kind of hilarious did you did and you... i really loved that so that was one of my favorite bits because it it, it has this element of humor and you go yeah it's it's daffy and goofy but it actually works at that point did you not think am i watching a reinterpretation of Point Break because I kind of feel like I'm watching a reinterpretation of that Point was, there Break. There was kind of a Point Breaky moment also, but I, I would go more for Heat. I yeah. think that I think it has... It's one of the, my favorite... I mean, having just watched it once, I'll probably have to go back and watch it again, but it's one of my favorite heist sequences because it's the heist itself is carried off beautifully, executed really well. It's a clever way of doing it, which is also always tough to make a heist work. And then it has this great, ridiculous payoff scene where I'm like, you haven't broken the mood, but I do think it's kind of funny. <laughs> it's, it's actually, you know, does that, those switches of tone really, really well. And when characters die, A, the, ba- the secondary characters actually are, considering some of them are in for more, a little more than a few seconds, they're actually surprisingly well rounded out. Yeah. Because it is a big gang and there's, there's you, they, you go, I, oh, there, there. It's like, oh no, I kind of get them. I understand their dynamic. And a, I think that was really well handled. There's a little more detail than there have been in a lot of films that have been trying to do this lately with this sort of dynamic. And I will say... I was glad for that because a lot of these I get to the end and I still don't know who was who yeah, because uh, there's too many characters. But even so, I still felt there wasn't enough for me. Yeah. I was like, I still was like, you know, I know who three of these characters are really well and a fourth one kind of well and the rest of them, I, I can recognize them and know what they're they're supposed to be about. And that's about it. It was just it felt like, like I said, this is trying to cram too much in. It wants to be too many different types of movies, but thankfully not the historical recreation film. It yeah. was like, look, we're here to have fun, ultimately. And there is a lot of fun to be had. There's a lot of good action movies, but even so, action scenes, but even so, it, it, at points, it, it's moving too fast from thing to, thing to thing, and at points, it's dragging its feet too much. And this is just my take on yeah. it. I thought that the whole storyline of, moving the guy who's their prisoner into being the guy who was just manipulating them the whole time into attacking the Japanese was kind of ham-handedly done. Where I was like, okay, I guess. Seems like the dumbest plan ever, but, <laughs> you know, like, not a very well-thought-out plan, all things considered, and statistically really unlikely to pull off. Yeah, it's a long shot. It's a long shot. It's a million to one long shot, and therefore it'll happen, it'll work 99% of the time. <laughs> in Hollywood it will, yeah. and now apparently in Hong Kong. I don't know. I mean, like I said, very mixed feelings about this one for me, but you really liked it. So. I liked it because I think it, I'm seeing so many films that try and do the same thing and don't pull them off as well. Yeah. Uh, I, so I think there was an element of relief about that. It's beautifully shot. Yeah, the color palette, the cinematography generally is fantastic. Uh, some of the individual shots are pretty breathtaking. And it, it it's, feels like it's a slightly different take on, on mainland China. Yeah. It looks it looks different, and the set pieces really work. And there's like four or five big set pieces where you just go, I could just watch this as an isolated clip, yeah, and 
really go over how it works so perfectly and really still lose myself in it. But particularly the heist. The heist, and then there's a raid on their underground... There's a couple of raids on their underground cave system that are beautifully put together. Uh, I do agree with that. Well, you know what? Let's move on back to America, or America. I guess England really more than anything with where this film is set, in the remake of Gambit. This is a remake of the 1966 film of the same name, starring Shirley MacLaine and Michael Caine, which is a lot of fun. Uh, this one is directed by Michael Hoffman, um, and it stars Colin Firth, Cameron Diaz, the Alan Rickman, who I'm just... I just get warm fuzzies every time he's in anything, pretty much. And and Stanley Tucci. Um, Hoffman has had some really good films in his career. Uh, Soap Dish is still my favorite of his run. Oh, I lo- great. I love that movie so much. But never really kind of broke into the mainstream overall. The main thing that a- attracted me to this was that it was written by Joel and Ethan Cohen, which begs the question, why didn't the Coens make this film if they wrote it? Like, did they read, finish their script and go, eh, and then somebody was rooting through their garbage? <laughs> I mean, what happened? Because this is definitely not one of the better Coen brother <laughs> written Ooh, movies. And it, but it also, like, you are smacked in the face with how much better this film had been would have been if it had been made by the Coens. There's so many moments that were, there. It's, it's like the director is intentionally trying to throw himself away from their style as much as possible, but it ends up just being very workmanlike, yeah. unfortunately. But the story here follows British art curator Harry Dean, played by Colin Firth, who's playing a very traditional Colin Firth, stick-up-his-ass stick type of character, you know, very British, uh, what's the word I'm looking at? Stuffy British, yeah. you know, type, who... You, you mean the Colin Firth character? The Colin Firth character, and except with the except, well, I guess not with the exception of Pride and Prejudice. That was where it started. Uh, but uh, don't get me started on how, uh, one of the worst adaptations, uh, most disloyal adaptations of a, of a book ever. I, I really hate Pride and Prejudice. That's for another day. But there we go. I, I loved it, but oh, you're wrong. <laughs> Just incorrect. Just okay. move on. Uh, fair enough. But he hates his boss, Lord Shabandar, uh, who there's this running theme of. Like his his logo is a lion, and that keeps coming up again and again, both in sound cues and and effects in the film. Uh, played by Alan Rickman, who he wants to trick him into buying a fake Monet haystacks at dusk, which had long since disappeared ever since the Nazis had taken it, and he's created this elaborate way to convince him that he's found it and to buy it, and that it'll just be a fake and it'll just take him for all this money. And his plan, but his plan requires. Uh, inexplicably, the help of a Texas rodeo queen. As as it does. It, it really makes no sense in the context of the film why it has to be this one particular person. Like, her rodeo skills, although of course it comes into the movie at some point, are never part of the plan at all. Why does it have to be her? Well, for a really distant reason, apparently she ha- had... It's Cameron Diaz playing that role of a complete, you know, she's a rednecky American girl. Uh, and apparently she has a distant relative who was one of the soldiers who went into, who captured one of the Nazi vaults. One of the many soldiers who captured one of the many Nazi vaults. Uh, and they're like, oh, well, I guess theoretically it's possible he could have taken the painting. 
wouldn't there be quite like several hundred other options <laughs> out there of descendants you could have picked from rather than this famous rodeo girl? But anyway, they go to America and the idea is and there's a, there's a very cute sequence where it's you think this is the movie happening at first, you know, like, oh, OK, the plan started where they go and they take a picture of her in her house, you know, with her mom, with the picture behind them and plant it in a magazine owned by the owner of this company, uh, Alan Rickman in a place where he can't, he's going to see it and freak out and call in his curator, uh, Colin Firth and say, we need to get this painting no matter what. And everything works out perfectly. And Cameron Diaz is actually all cultured and refined. And it's actually very funny, but then it goes to the real movie where nothing really goes as planned. She's a complete redneck. Um, and really doesn't know if she wants to be a part of this at all. Our, it's, Alan Rickman is completely disinterested and doesn't believe that this is could possibly be the real picture. So they have to revert, change their plan to convince him that this is actually the real thing. Uh, he's planning on firing Colin first character anyway, as they find out and hiring a new guy played by Stanley Tucci, Zayden, Zayden Weber Tucci, once again, playing a very affected German accent, accented guy. Why? Uh, it, it's kind of funny watching him in it. He has a more limited role. But even so, that whole thing plays out in a way that just is kind of obvious and dumb. So is this one of these films where Cameron Diaz is the best thing in a film that you just wish was a lot better? No. Uh, eyes Wide Shut. The best thing? Uh, or, uh, no, Eyes Wide Shut. Um, that other terrible Tom Cruise one she did. Uh, Vanilla Sky. Yes. Or is this one of these ones where you're kind of embarrassed because you know Cameron Diaz can act, but she just tries to be cute instead and you just want to pl- want to pluck your own eyes out? I mean, she's overplaying it like crazy, but they're going for stereotypes all throughout this, and she's not bad, all things considered. One of my favorite things about this is actually Tom Courtenay, great actor, yeah. who has a small role in here as the major, who is basically the art forger working with Colin Firth, who's kind of a kind of a grandfatherly figure to him, as it will, that they don't give anywhere near enough to do, but his scenes are very charming. And once again, it's Tom Courtenay. I mean, for Christ's sake, Yellow Tango wrote a song about the guy yeah <laughs> <laughs> um there is fun to be had here but it's awkwardly made i think uh, hoffman chooses the wrong way to go about making it and i think perhaps going chasing to some degree that aspect of ridiculous exaggeration of these characters in the way that the the the, the coen brothers have done in the past with a few of their films is was a poor decision <laughs> Uh, def- just you know what? Just go and see the original one with Shirley MacLaine back when she was so freaking hot. Like young Shirley MacLaine, holy crap, was she hot? But <laughs> you could sense the crazy even then. Yeah, but that um, was. The, but until you know specifically what the crazy is, that kind of crazy is hot. Yeah, you know. I mean, she's redheaded. You know. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, but with this version, even the poster looks like a. a really bad fish called wonder knockoff it just really everything about this is just screaming to me you know kind of low point british class comedy with a with a loud american dropped in the middle which we did we just did too many of those in the 80s and 90s we don't need to start doing them again and these i love a heist film and i love a con film and there's elements in here of that that are somewhat fun you know, I mean, I can be a sucker for that all the way. I mean, we reviewed one recently with Kurt Russell and Matt Dillon that didn't get great reviews across the board, but we really, really liked it a lot. Like, you know what? There's no big surprises here, but it certainly is fun anyway. 
this keeps diffusing its fun and does makes really obvious decisions and you're just waiting like the film tries to set you up for nothing worked and you're just waiting for the final twist like okay come on how long is this gonna take maybe the real con <laughs> is that the coen brothers managed to sell this script maybe so <laughs> they walked away going Whoa! yeah i really apparently the script was well known around hollywood uh for quite a while it had just been flirting floating around uh until 2009 when movement started on it doug lyman was going to produce at one point but smartly decided to make edge of tomorrow instead oh, right which he did a spectacular job with Oh, uh, you didn't get to see that, I assume. No, I, I you know, you deep know, shame. Tom Cruise brings me out in hives. No, no, you shouldn't ah, be like that. Hush. Well, let's talk about people that a movie that should bring you out in hives, and that is Endless Love, another remake of a film from 1981 that was pretty awful when it came out, and this stays true to the original. <laughs> I ju- I just hear the horrible song all the way through. Uh, <laughs> It's just, I don't even want to spend too much time on this, but the idea is it's graduating class, uh, Jade Butterfield played by, (laughs) played by Gabriella Wilde is, you know, the very smart, very shy, very sheltered young woman, uh, who's uh, going to be attending a big college after this, but it's clear because she worked so hard to do well in school, she doesn't have any friends. Uh, and she's, you know, hanging out with her family when, and talking about her brother, who apparently was the, the guy who's everything she wasn't, you know, the sort of like lots of friends and everybody loved him, uh, who had died from cancer a few years ago. And this one student who for, apparently, they say he's never had the courage to approach her. Play, David Elliott, played by Alex, the the horrendous Alex Pettifer, who is like one of the. Bi- I mean, seriously, I will take Jai Courtney over Alex Pettifer any day of the week. Oh, gosh, <laughs> I'm gosh. so awful. Jaden uh, Smith, uh, right? And okay, you're right. Jaden Smith is like, but even Jaden Smith doesn't like Jaden Smith. I don't think so. <laughs> He's like, Dad, do I have to? Yes, you have to. Do I have to be Jaden Smith? Get yes. back, get back in the learning crash. Oh. <laughs> um, just as just as a, as a white suited Batman, right? Yeah. They say Alex Pettifer's character has never had the courage throughout high school to speak to her, but then he goes on to be like one of those woman dream characters, full of charisma and action, and always with great things to do. You're like, really? He didn't have the courage to go up and talk to the shy girl. Except practically the quarterback of everything. <laughs> Uh, but this turns into one of those parents don't approve of the of, of the relationship because she's got to do serious in school. With- parents don't approve of the relationship between two high achieving kids. Well, he's not all that high achieving. Uh. I mean, he did well, but his family has no money, whereas her family is super rich. You know, a Bruce Greenwood who makes a better voice of Batman than anything else these days, and Jolie Richardson play the family with Reese Wakefield being one of the few high points in this movie is her brother Keith, who actually is a, a pretty appealing actor and is funny in the few scenes they give him. Uh, it's just predictable and boring and even teenage girls I know who saw this told me they were really bored by this movie, <laughs> which is a, you know, wow. When you're missing your demographic. Yeah. Um, there's just every little trick that they play in these films to make him seem appealing, you know, to that demographic is there and makes no sense in the context of it. And there's weird, I, you know what, like I said, the less said, the better point is it's out on Blu-ray now. I know you guys are going to probably end up voting it at the end of the year for one of the fucking crappy movies that we're going to have to watch and do a commentary for. I can only ask you now not to, please. but for all the good that's going to do, please. I'll probably have to watch this fucking thing again at some point. So vote for it. 
Right. Uh, yeah, but remember, if you vote for it, it means you are going to end up having to watch it. Wah, wah. <laughs> so ah. think about that. All right, uh, let's move on to. You know, now they're going to they're going to deliberately do blue movies, so you got to watch the entire thing. No, no, you're no. going to have to do that last time. Current now. movies only. Current <laughs> movies only. Uh, this is a real quick thing: Hitler and the Nazis, uh, which is the worst band name ever, for the record. Like terrible. I don't know what they were thinking. <laughs> Too soon. Too, oh, really? Is it? Well, I guess no, like... A, no, I think, I think another, Mel Brooks proved we were okay there. Yeah, fair enough. Um, this is a about four and a half hour television series that take a look at World War II exclusively from the viewpoint of what was going on with Hitler and the Nazi party. Now, this is actually more rare than you'd think. There's a just an endless ton of movies and documentary series and television series about World War II. I mean, I own several of them. I find World War II absolutely fascinating. This is kind of weird in the sense that it's so incredibly focused just on Hitler and the Nazis. And despite the relatively short running time for a miniseries about this or any series about World War II, like four and a half hours? Really? Because of the fact that it's just about that, it manages to fit in a lot of stuff, a lot of interesting facts. Um, if there is a fault with this, it's mainly that there's... It feels a little rushed. There's points where there are actual misspellings on the titles. Like, they misspell Olympics at one point. Really? Yeah, I was like, wait. How? I... Somebody didn't catch it. And, yeah, well, how do they misspell it? Uh, I don't remember, Literally. but it was wrong. <laughs> it was like, that's not how you spell Olympics. Olympics. And, and you know, it would be one thing if this was translated from another language. It's not. <laughs> you know, uh, lots of talking heads with, you know, people who were, who got to see, who were there and alive, which clearly must have come from some other footage from the 70s or 80s. You know, it's like, because they aren't that age or alive anymore, clearly, nope. if they if they saw all the things that they saw. But some some pretty interesting stuff throughout this. I especially liked the entry on the Berlin Olympics, which has footage of, like, Hitler having a fucking coronary when Jesse Owens keeps winning <laughs> everything. Like, he is having a fit. And, like, that's hysterical. I have never seen that before. <laughs> yeah, Jesse Owens, the black guy, shows up and just wipes up the ground like, with every white Nazis. dude. <laughs> Bye! Yeah. Bye! Like, ah! But, yeah, this is... I don't know if fun is the right word, but it's a, you know, relatively short... Really interesting look at at the war, specifically through the eyes of what was going on with the Nazi Party and Hitler. Yeah, because I found that with a lot of uh, historical stuff that you kind of get to, you know, the Night of the Long Knives, and then you it's in history, and it stops being about what was happening in Germany. So it's about what was happening in England. Yeah, or in England, or in Poland, or, or yeah. wherever. And it, in part, that's because there was a very deliberate effort by the Germans to uh, get rid of any records of anything anything happening internally that wasn't the beautiful propagandized version. So, I mean, yeah. there's one of the issues that uh, a few years ago, somebody found a big archive of material about uh, German anti-Nazi um, guerrilla groups during World War II. No kidding. And, like, nobody really knew these existed before and knew any details because if you were a German and you were an anti-Nazi and you are actually going around and shooting Nazis or blowing them up, you got taken out, you got shot, and then they burnt the files. Right. So, they could ne- so nobody could ever say, ah, well, there, there were people, people in Germany who were opposed to this. It's like they could create this myth internally. So it's really fascinating that you've actually got that discussion in here and they, they found d- enough material to say, okay, well, here's what was really happening. They and do, not just go, fact- you know, Oh, you jump straight from Kristallnacht to uh, you know the the conspiracy of generals, right? 
No, th- this, uh, in fact, does deal with the internal strife going on with that. It was really interesting because last week I watched uh, The First World War, a considerably longer miniseries detailing every aspect of that, a war I knew much less about. And following that up with this and really seeing, you know, the way Germany was just, I mean, a mess after World War One. Like, there was just no sense of pride and everyone was, like, not sure which way things were going and political fight- parties battling out, you know, it, it It's a great sequel. (laughs) You know, the Great War was great, let's face it. But the Great War 2, yeah, with the end where, you know, like uh, uh, Hitler loses his hand and uh, and Churchill tells him he was his father. I think that's Or is it the other way around? I think you may be thinking about a different franchise. No? Yeah, I think so. I don't know. I get confused. I don't know, but I do know that J.J. Abrams is heading up World War III. (laughs) Uh, Well, that I think we all knew. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, let's move on. Let's do a quick television show here with the sad wrap-up of one of the last really good things that was on the Sci-Fi Channel for my money. Shut up. What? Is there something else that you really Shut up. No. Are you going to get verklempt? I'm going to I'm verklempt. Okay. This is the end of Warehouse 13, which is the last surviving of... You know, I never heard of a name of the trilogy of shows that took place in the same universe i never heard anybody coin a phrase but alphas and eureka and warehouse 13 all take place in a shared universe and would have appearances by characters back and forth throughout them whereas the other two shows alphas only lasted two seasons sadly which is a real shame because that was it was good that was what heroes thought it was season two was like that's what heroes should have been you're absolutely right uh eureka was just Good fun. I mean, it was like quirky, nerdy, like great, like feel good. I mean, it has that sort of, it's sci-fi that's trying to be more like next generation in the sense that everybody gets along and everybody wants to do the right thing. And it's feel good sci-fi TV, which I, when done right is terrific. And this had such a great sense of humor. So many great, like, uh, uh, Will Wheaton and playing like a sort of not villainous, but kind of douchebag character on yeah. it the last couple seasons and yeah great stuff Warehouse 13 I still thought that was the best oh, of the fun. three shows which was such a fun conceit basically the warehouse from Indiana Jones yes uh, let's say the, the whole different group runs that warehouse and all that stuff in there are all things that are sort of like Friday the 13th the TV show they're all items of historical notice first you know Jackie Robinson's uh, baseball glove shit like that but because of the emotional impact or whatever was involved in that period of time with that object it has taken on supernatural powers and has an effect and a, and sometimes a curse that comes with it and these agents who are hired from various and sundry places are their job is to make sure that they are getting these objects away from the hands of various people who have, have them and are abusing them or don't know they're abusing or don't know they're abusing them and put them back in the warehouse and honestly, I think the show, it got better and better as it went along, but one of the, the high points was around season three when they started to realize we should start letting the agents start using the items in the warehouse like actively, like have yeah. access to this stuff more and more to do stuff. And it just like, I mean, it's a very tongue in cheek show. It knows exactly what it is. It's filled with references to other sci-fi and fantasy and horror stuff. I mean, constantly. And it all has this weird, it's in its center is this moonlighting type relationship with the two leads, Eddie McClintock and Joanne Kelly, who are, you know, the, the agents who clearly have affection for each other, but are, Rip more like, you know, every time it would possibly come up, like, ooh, ah, blah, gag. You know, they're both children, really. (laughs) Especially Eddie McClintock. This is what I really loved about the show. It started off as kind of, you know, that dysfunctional, she's straight-laced and and he's the quirky quirky one. 
um, it became a family. And you really felt like, oh, I'm getting to see these people I love. Saul Rubinek as so Artie, as who's the, the, the grumpy old boss who just turns up and just like, and he's like, constantly angry at them all because he loves them, really. Uh, uh, Alison Scagnetti, who oh, joined who, the cast in season two and was like the one that was who, the missing. She was the missing piece. She was the missing piece. A lot of that happens with a lot of shows like this, where it's like, you're almost there. There's just one thing missing out of the equation. And, and she's she a kind of it. quirky, super nerdy, slightly cooler than she thinks she is. Yeah. Um, just attracted, just so attracted to what this place is. And adds that kind of element of like, just a, a rogue spark. Um, and um, um, Aaron Ashmore. Yeah, uh, yeah, Aaron Ashmore, the the brother of the guy who plays Iceman in the X Men. Yeah, movies. who is who was the bit where you went? I didn't realize this show needed anything else. Yeah, and suddenly he comes in. It was what two seasons ago? I yeah, believe, and where was, he's like a foil for Allison Scagnetti. Yeah, because yeah. they they and he's great in it. He's really funny and dry, he's, and just always seems like he's going. He's the one who goes. You, you're all weird. You're all a little bit weird. I like being here, and I'm slightly weird, but you're all weird. Well, it's, it's odd that, uh, you know, along the way, and starting at the beginning, it's like uh, everyone who works for the warehouse is chosen partially because they have some sort of however subtle ability that they can do. Like, Eddie McClintock can tell. He has a spider sense, yeah. basically. He can tell when something's about to go fucking totally wrong. Something A conceit they all but abandoned by the end of the show, yeah. you know? I was like, I don't even remember the last time they brought that up, that he could it, do that. It, Turns up a couple of times this season, but only like very minor ones. And it's almost yeah. like he doesn't have to say anything. It's just like yeah. he just goes, ah, uh, yeah. not good. Uh, but Aaron Ashmore is interesting because his whole thing, Steve Jinks is his role. He uh, can tell when someone's lying, no matter what. And they actually had a lot of fun with that. Yeah. And the fact that he is like the least gay gay guy ever. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> which which comes up very pointedly in one episode. Here. Yeah. There's a point uh, where he gets split. His personality is split into two people. One of which is the all straight, no business, no sense of humor guy, and the other is like the campus Christmas yeah exactly but, uh, that was one of the things I really liked him on the earlier uh, earlier seasons was that you had an episode where his ex-boyfriend turns up and they're not camp they, they didn't go they, uh, they just said there's a couple of guys who ha- who are gay they're, we're not going to play any stereotypes with no. them they're just like you know they were, in a, they were in a relationship and they're dealing with the fallout from their relationship well, I always thought it's funny that Alison Scagnetti's character always wants to be his fag hag as, yes as it were. and he's he like wants to be and he's like that's not who I am. I don't see why you can't get that. <laughs> She's so disappointed that he doesn't want to go out with her shopping for clothes. Yeah. But, the, you know, this is the final season. Um, yeah. I, I, you know, I'm going to... Sh- this, this is a second shaky fist of the, of the week moment. Shaky fist. A shaky uh, fist. At, uh, at Sci-Fi 1 for putting in, out a terrible Independence Day knockoff 20 years too late. <laughs> and two... Six episodes for the final season yeah. of such a beloved series. Well, there is no logic for this. I get the feeling that whatever group of producers was involved with the Sci-Fi Channel that initially started all these shows left some point around the cancellation of Alphas, and after that they were just trying to clean house and get and get restarted with doing shows like Helix and stuff like that. No, we're going to be all which I love. Now. I love Helix, but this, it's a very different. But this, yeah, there was. It feels like you're missing something when you're like taking this really popular world building that you've done and just abandoning it completely. Yeah, it's more comical. It's more fun. But you can have that end the other thing. But and and this somebody show got this, pretty dark in places. It, it did occasionally. Some of the stuff with uh, H. G. Wells, who turned out to be a woman, wonderfully played. Yeah. Uh, great role. Who has a very small 
small appearance in this in the, uh, the final episode of this season got pretty dark. Yeah. But overall, this was more fun than not. Um, I thought the sixth season got off a little shaky uh, with uh, Paris uh, Paracelsus, Paracelsus. Uh, who is played by uh, the guy who was uh, Giles on uh, yeah. Buffy the Vampire Slayer, whose name is escaping me right now. But uh, why? How come? I, can I? Anthony Stewart Head, yes, who's wonderful. But the idea, like he was a former Warehouse Thirteen controller, he was or Warehouse Warehouse Ten or something like that, yeah. uh, who went crazy and was bronzed. But now, at the end of last season, he got free, and he has figured out a way to make the Warehouse p- realize Warehouse Thirteen needs to come to an end and push on and basically teleport everything autonomically to a new warehouse location that he has set himself up to be in control of. In fact, actually changing the nature of time where it's already happened. Yes. And now he's control of this fascist world where Warehouse 13 uses its, you know, the abilities of all the stuff they have to take control of They're government. Weaponize, weaponize the artifacts. Yeah. And it gets... <sighs> It's a little like, okay, can we get through this so we can get back to stuff about the characters? And I also thought it's a little awkward when that show suddenly decides, you know, we got to get Pete and Micah together. Yeah. It's a little bit of a sudden, like, wait, really? They would just happen that fast like that? Doesn't quite work. I think the there's a lot of notes in the season six that feel very rushed. And you can understand. They probably had plans for a whole season and had to condense it down to six episodes. And the most, I think, But at the same time, I think they pull off they obviously had a big idea to introduce um, Alison Cagnetti's sister, um, and that, that feels like they had a lot more plot to yeah. pull off. But I think they they managed to pull off a really wonderful version of that story and a really truncated version, a clearly truncated version by you know going through this. I, I won't explain how, but they create a quick shorthand that goes, "Yeah, they're sisters." Yeah. And you understand, like, yeah, they get each other. And, and her sister, who's been in a coma for, you know, the last 10 years, is, you know, looks like a grown woman, but is actually a 13-year-old girl. And you're like, oh, hang on. Yeah, that's, that's how do you deal with that as a family? And, and I, yeah, I think it's... It felt, and, and, it felt like there's so many more interesting things that could have been done yeah. with that than this season actually got around. The yeah, and that's just because, you know, curse you, sci-fi. And working under the constraints they they clearly had that they didn't aim for a... This was a a 13-episode season, not a six-episode season. And we were talking earlier during the uh, the uh, listeners' questions about great series finales. Yeah. This. Yeah. Absolutely. It's, it's, they got it right for uh, the finale. They couldn't it's, have done it better. It's, they get the heart right. They get the fun right with the idea of a sort of like taking a clip show of clips that never we've never seen before. Yeah. And even to the point of like, you know, the first one being like... <laughs> caught in a giant uh, um, a, a item that makes everyone be in a Busby Berkeley musical. Yes, you know you're like, oh god, come on, you're just you're hitting me where it hurts right here. And this they, is where you well, get they've clearly me. gone to the cast members and said, you know, what do you want? What have you never got to do? Yeah, you know, and and they have that payoff. And and there's a, a you know those moments where you just feel like. They said, what film do you want to be in? Just for five minutes. Just for five minutes and to have this. The odd thing is some of the stuff in here, uh, like Artie having a son, was very, like, we always meant to do a story about this and we never got around to it. Yeah. So we're just going to do, with this actor, we always wanted to cast in this role and just do a little short bit yeah. here. Uh, and a wonderful little codicil in here about the future of the warehouses that made me laugh when the object in question they have is Barack Obama's basketball. Yes. <laughs> I just wanted to know what it does, what its power was. And, and if this show proves one thing beyond anything else, it's a 
it never hurts to have a bit of humour because uh, it could still carry off like really getting you emotionally engaged with the character oh yeah B uh, CCH Pounder is just the best thing on television ever yeah, she, and always has been she, ever since the shield yeah. which is where I remember her being so powerful on but here she plays well, sort she of like ER as well she might have been I've I think never she been was, ER watcher sure. but um, she plays sort of like this uh, one of the chairman elite of the warehouse structure who uh, has mysterious powers of her own, even though we never really know what they are. But that's part of the appeal that she's mysterious, she, she but we don't really understand. And disappears without, which to people's endless frustration. And that's yeah. one of the that was one of the great character beats they built in very early on, where you know Pete and Mike were going, "Where did she, she go?" She Batman's and up. and Artie just goes, "Yeah, that happens. Just get used to it. Don't even bother asking questions." It's, and two seasons later, they're still going, "Where did she go?" And Artie's like, "Why do you even ask? You know she's going to disappear." It's a Batman joke, and to the show's credit, they do, in fact, reference Batman at times yeah. when it happens. So, yeah. I mean, this, I, I, the two nerdiest shows, like legitimately nerdiest shows that were on television in recent years, were this and Community. Because yeah. they didn't, you know, they didn't do the Big Bang Theory of going, we're going to put in 15 jokes about, about Digimon this week. Did, yeah. like, it's like, no. This was just in the warp and the weft of it. This film, this series just understood what we as fans want to see and what we love and came at us in the same way, in the same way that Community did. Community could just be nerdy in the same way. And I'm really sad that two shows that I was emotionally invested in, but I could guarantee would make me laugh and I wanted to see the next episode, really yeah. want to see the next episode, are both gone in a two-month period. I mean, and I'm like, it's a hole in TV. So much of the appeal of this is the chemistry between the characters, which is so flawless, yeah. and the just huge kid-in-a-candy-store energy of the writers. You know, we're like, we can do anything with this show, and they often do. Uh, you know, at its worst, you go, God, these special effects are really awful. <laughs> uh, but you, there's that also that forgiveness because everything else is so well done that you're like, you know what? It's a sci-fi channel. It's a big concept show at points. They want to pull off these big things. You can suspend your disbelief because it's so much fun to watch. Now, this being a six-episode season, they don't leave you with just that with the set. In fact, there includes the Christmas episode, which aired months Aww. before any of this, which is nice. That's in the bonus features to find it, but it is there, and it was a great Christmas episode. Episode, uh, as well as a gag reel, which is very funny because, and you watch it and you're like, holy shit, these guys are just playing themselves pretty much. Like yeah. every single, when you watch them just fucking around, they're, they're their characters. And then a whole, like it says endless deleted scenes. So I didn't watch them, but apparently just a fuck ton of deleted <laughs> scenes. And then a five part, I believe it was five part, uh, behind the scenes, like uh, EPK type series about the whole history of the show, about specifically this. And like one of the first things in there is them saying, you know, the great thing about being in the show is they basically, you know, designed our characters over who we actually were anyway. I was like, oh, well, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. <laughs> so, but yeah, thoroughly recommend the show. If you guys haven't checked out, go to season one and start from there and just watch it straight through. It comes to a satisfying ending. And yeah, very sad to see Warehouse 13 say goodbye. Uh, but let's talk to, about something that ended a long time ago, and that is Red River. 1948 film. Criterion has put it out in a very impressive new set that comes with not only the Blu-ray of the theatrical release, but the Blu-ray of the extended cut, which is only really for... Com All right, so here's the deal. Pl when this movie plays on TV and previous VHS copies and DVD copies, often it was, in fact, this extended cut that the director, the great Howard Hawks, 
did not care for. It was yeah. like, no, why did you put that footage in there? Why did you change things? That shouldn't, that, it shouldn't be that way. Uh, even the, one of the weirdest thing, decisions on the whole thing is Walter Brennan, who plays like the, well, about that time, back in the old west, like, you know, the guy who narrates like western theme rides in line at Disney World. Yeah. Um, they, he was the narrator of the whole thing, and that was replaced and cut out with title cards instead in the extended version, which why? is like, why would you do that? But if you want to see that version, that's here on Blu-ray and DVD. If you want to see the original approved by Howard Hawks and slightly shorter cut, uh, that's on Blu-ray and DVD here as well. There is a full copy of the original novel that this is based on that comes packed with it, as well as the usual booklet full of facts and interviews and stuff. Uh, Terrific stuff. This is John Wayne, acting-wise, anyway, at his best. I mean, even apparently John Ford, upon seeing this, said, I had no idea he could act. Uh, who had been done tons of films with him. <laughs> it's like, I didn't know he could act. <laughs> oh, I should have been giving him roles with some more range, I guess. Bit harsh, but... Uh, yeah, a bit harsh, but Wayne plays Thomas Dunson, a kind of stubborn old coot who uh, wants to set up a cattle ranch in Texas. Um, you know, on the... We see the earlier part where he's younger, you know, has his natural hair color, because later on they dye his hair white to make it look <laughs> like he's old. Um uh, he goes to Texas, his wagon train and his lady love is killed shortly after they leave and nothing he can do about it. Um, and he, they take on a straggler, a young kid who like is the one survivor of the train, uh, Matthew Garth. Switch to modern day. They have kicked ass. The ranch take off. Garth has been officially adopted by uh, Thomas uh, and he's full blown now played by Montgomery, Montgomery Clift, who's just wildly ridiculously handsome guy. Oh yeah, you know. And it's clear there's a little bit of tension, but still a lot of familial love between the two of them. Uh, and they realize John Wayne doesn't know much about money; he just knows about ranching. But he's realized there is no market for beef in Texas, which seems weird. But at mm-hmm. the time, there wasn't. Uh, we don't know what to do with this, so we're gonna try and pull. Everyone says it's impossible. Uh, you know cattle drive and bring them all up to Missouri which is weird because I thought everybody called it Missouri back then but oh no no uh, 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 my wife's from Missouri and you know anybody says Missouri and her her eyes twitch do they okay yeah like uh, like the uh, nobody in Missouri I, I think like Hoochies call it Missouri. Okay, fair uh, enough. I think nobody else does. All right, fair enough. I wasn't, I'm not from that. Yeah, no, it's weird. Like, uh, nobody's quite sure where the Missouri thing comes from, but it drives the population. I just, yeah, that's really why mad. I just assumed it was really old. Yeah. So, yeah. Anyway, uh, they get together a whole group of uh, misfits, basically, to, to drive the cattle up there, all with the deal. You only get paid if the cattle make it. And along the way, they find out that there's at least rumors and strong rumors that now in Kansas, which is considerably closer and on a much safer path than the beset by Indians and weather and bandits path to Missouri, there's actually a train station and desire for beef. But Wayne is one of those guys they established earlier who's like, look, once he's made up his mind, he's made up his mind. It's like trying to take a, a, a bone away from a dog. You know, you're just not going to do it. Um, and everyone's starting to go like, what's the deal, man? Were you like, things are getting worse and worse and you're not even taking, even investigating the possibility of this. And of course it ends up being a mutiny as Matthew Garth finally goes, Look, I'm sorry to turn on you, Dad, but you you fucked this up. You to the point where he's going to hang some guys of the crew for questioning his orders, basically. And he's like, "Nope, I'm taking the cattle and I'm going my own way to Kansas. You can meet me there if you want or not." And it's a very 
stressful scenario when it finally gets to that point because you, you like these two men and you want them to work it out you know but Wayne is such a douche <laughs> he really is he starts off as such a heroic guy and they turn him into such a dick you're like come on Wayne you're John Wayne I'm not supposed to hate you except for when you play Genghis Khan <laughs> and that's only because you chose to play Genghis, Genghis Khan. Khan bad call it's funny it's an otherwise good movie with a terrible casting choice um this is considered to be a major classic of a film. Like, it's on AFI's top five list of all-time best westerns. Now, uh, not hotels, sorry, best western films. Um, <laughs> I tend to like stuff that more follows the spaghetti western, Sergio Leone ideas of the western and the, the anti-heroes and what have you. And this is more of a very traditional western. A lot of stuff in here seems cliched now, but fuck, it came out in 1949. What do you, or 1948, what do you want? Well, that's the thing. I mean, I mean they're, they're, they're cliches because everybody was ripping this off. Everybody was ripping this off, which is the time, you know, beautiful cinematography of the surrounding area. Um, I mean, it's, it's a beautiful looking film. It's got great acting in it. It is the best John Wayne performance I ever saw. I, I, far, I mean, he has 157 films. I haven't seen all his movies, obviously, but it's the I best one. Best one I've seen him do, even better than The Seekers. Um, it's well worth seeing, and it's a, it's a historical... It's one of those films that as a film student, sooner or later, it's going to come up if you haven't seen it. Yeah. It's gonna, someone's going to go, really? You never saw Red River? You, you kind of have to, at some point, sit down with this movie if you're going to you know, be a serious student of film. I saw it way back in film history of film 101 in Ooh. college, and I hadn't seen it since then. So I'm glad I got to see it again. But this being Criterion, it comes with a uh, basically a description of the different versions and 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 what the differences are. An original trailer. Uh, Peter Bogdanovich, who apparently like just hangs outside the Criterion studios. Does he live there? Them. I know, right? It's like he doesn't do anything else now but appear on Criterion documentaries. Just randomly talking about films. Uh, he, it's an interview with him talking about Red River. Uh, there is a audio excerpt from an interview Bogdanovich conven- did with Howard Hawks in 1972. Um, there's a Lux Radio Theater adaptation of really? Red River featuring John Wayne, Walter Brennan, and Joanne Andrew, Drew, the stars of the film. Uh, there's a new interview... Uh, a video interview with a critic Molly Haskell who looks at Hawk's whole body of work uh, there is a video a new intervi- video interview with Lee Clark Mitchell the author of Westerns Making the Man in Fiction and Film who looks at the themes and conflicts in here there are four excerpts from an audio interview with the novelist and screenwriter Borden Chase whose book this was based on and of course like I said before the actual novel in question and a booklet featuring an essay by a critic and an interview with Howard Hawks about the film top notch stuff well worth your time not my personal favorite Western uh, but no question, a great film, nonetheless. Yeah. Well, that brings us to our last film of the day, which is also our giveaway! giveaway! Journey to the West, Conquering the Demons. Now, you may not have ever heard of the story of Journey of the West, but if you were lived in China, you would have. Because yes. it's one of their great endless series of books myths uh, you know about the a hundred chapters yeah a hundred chapters they didn't even like pack heroes, their bags until chapter 13 heroes and Buddha and the monkey king like anytime you heard the monkey king you've probably seen a Hong Kong film monkey king that came from Journey to the or West or if you've seen the TV series monkey from 1979 indeed uh, the with, for, in the Forbidden Kingdom even that movie with Jet Li and Jackie Chan featured yeah. the monkey king in it like the, the classic it's basically the the Chinese version of 
the trickster or the coyote yeah, or exactly. Loki. He's he's the troublemaker, but he's kind of charming in in some way. It's hard not. It's hard. You can't hate him completely because he's funny. Yeah, uh, and he annoyed Buddha, <laughs> yeah. and, he, and he got lo- Buddha locked. He, like that, that, that kind of like sums up the character. He annoyed Buddha. Yeah, and, he, and bu- even even Buddha with the Buddha nature is going. No, you're an ass. You're an, <laughs> oh God, I hate you. <laughs> and Buddha took his gun and went Buddha, 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 Buddha. Stop that. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> uh, this is but more remarkable than that about this movie and this is what you guys want to know and want to hear it's going to make you excited about this this is the latest Stephen Chow directed film who is the man who brought us Shaolin Soccer which is absolutely fucking amazing Kung Fu Hustle which is one of my favorite films of all time which is absolutely incredible Uh, 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 was God of Cookery which you've never seen is imagine Kung Fu Hustle or or imagine Shaolin Soccer if instead of being soccer it was about cooking shows (laughs) <laughs> just phenomenal stuff yeah the, the man from Beijing I believe was one of his as well yep. uh, his last movie not so hot it was like SP7 or something like that yeah. it was a bad attempt to do a comedic version of E.T. and it did not work Ooh, dear. it was so poor but this is Stephen Chow back to style now he doesn't actually star in this although when you watch there's a nice series of bonus features of a behind the scenes stuff where you see him and you're like Wow, he still looks young, but his hair has gone completely gray. <laughs> like, Some of the stunts he's pulled off, my hair would have gone gray as well. I know, right? But he's getting a little up there. So instead, uh, he has gotten some other actors to come in and, and place him. In fact, Wen Zhang is the main actor here playing the lead role that would have been in any other movie, Stephen Chow, where he is a... It's weird. He's a Buddhist monk, sort of. He's got like long hair. He's like the, calls himself the unshaven monk that uh, follows this guy who you're not clear if he's a con man or what, who gives him this book of nursery rhymes and says, the deal is you can't kill demons that are out there. Instead, you have to try and find the good that's still in their souls and convert them back to the way of light and Buddha, which is made clear by this film from the get go is a very foolish thing idea. to try to do. Uh He's not completely incompetent, as we see in the intro, where and one of the greatest Hong Kong set pieces, yeah. like, ever. It's so much fun, with this multi-level fishing village that's being attacked by this giant fish demon, and this whole series of, like, Looney Tunes levers, and, you know, just, like, so funny. Children bouncing off of stuff, and, and then it suddenly goes extremely gruesome, and people get eaten. Yeah, like, like a little kid gets eaten, like, yeah. right off the bat. And you're, you're like, like oh, no, what? they're going to they're pull him out of the... Out of the, the Fish demon's belly. No. Nope. Just eaten. Uh, but they're basically showing up at the last minute to take credit for the whole thing is a girl played by the very popular Shu Ki, who you've seen in no end of... You'll see her if you watch Hong Kong movies, you're like, oh, yeah, she's in Ugh. fucking everything right now, um, who is a real demon expert. And he, you know, he's tries to be humble so he just walks and leaves. okay fine she can take the credit her she's clearly very competent at what she does because she is able to take this demon after it's turned to human form and crush it down into a little bag and say okay now see i now have my little demon bag and he can't bother anyone anymore and it's adorable and you can buy them at the miyazaki store <laughs> <laughs> um but moving right on he shows up at like another place with another demon this giant pig demon that's and a really genuinely creepy sequence yeah. where she shows up and saves his bacon, as it were, uh, with her powers because she's a total badass. And then inexplicably decides that she's in love with them. That's the only part of this film that bugs me at all because she goes from like total disdain to like, I love this guy and I want to be his wife. Where did that come from? No idea. But you know what? Who cares? This is a wacky, bizarre 
fun Stephen Chow movie. Yeah. Filled with, like, the type of crazy martial arts stuff you like seeing mixed with, like, the only guy who can do, in China, heavily CG pictures, and it doesn't bother you. Yeah, I... This is not... I have to say, I mean, it's Stephen Chow, who is, even at his worst, including that bad E.T. knockoff, you know, is still fun and entertaining. This is not his best film. No, I wouldn't put I mean, this... It's, it's, I wouldn't say this is a, a, one of his very best, but... It's it's huge fun. It's yeah. very entertaining. Uh, the it, it, Kung Fu Hustle is still his best film. Yeah, because that's a whole narrative. This He never quite gets past the fact that he is adapting really the first 13 or 14 chapters of the uh, of, of the book and it feels very chapterized and then you kind of get to the end and you go oh right yeah and, it, and if you know journey to the west or you know uh, monkey you'll kind of look at the characters and go well i know where they're going to end up yeah this is kind of the origin story for them and, and you're kind uh, of waiting okay. for them to get to that. Apparently, point. this was sold as the first movie of a series. Well, I'm hoping so, but because... it's still had they still haven't moved forward on making or whether or not they're going to make the next one. But I su- assume they will. This made this a was huge hugely successful. Oh my god, this was like a gigantic hit overseas. Yeah. So I mean, uh, in fact, it is the most successful now Hong Kong movie, uh, like for first weekend ever. Apparently, wow. like it was the last Transformers movie, and now it and now it's this. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, the best thing about it for me, and I think this is possibly one of my issues I have with it, is Huang Bo as the Monkey King. Yeah. But he doesn't turn up until about halfway through, and I'm like, really wanting something like... It, it's He's played very much like the Beast in Kung Fu Hustle. Yeah. You know, kind of this ridiculous, nasty, unpleasant character who you kind of can't trust, but is so charismatic. And Huang Bo who hasn't really done a huge amount of high-profile stuff before, is so good in this and so much fun. It's kind of like, you know he's manipulative. You know he's playing around with them. And, you know, Chow in his adaptation does take some very liberal... Uh, oh, certainly. <laughs> you know, there isn't a love interest in the original Journey to the West, but he, he's clearly taken a lot of the, the elements and given them a new twist. There's something. There's some little props that turn up that... If he moves forward, will clearly come back again. Sure, uh, and I think that works. That works really, really well. Um, yeah, the um, uh, there's also a whole bunch of additional demon hunters who turn up. Who are so funny. Who are so funny and kind of reminded me of um, Chinese ghost story. Yeah, well, they way. all have like a really weird special ability or some characteristic about them that's like very distinct and you know i mean the funniest to me was the one guy who's sort of like like, like the trent Reznor of ancient china he's who's so like all fey. gothy and fey and he's like so serious and there are these like women who cart him around and throw petals at him who it turns out quickly he's just paying them and they all think he's a douche yeah <laughs> <laughs> there's lots of good quality stuff like that the old the biggest problem is that ultimately this is a series of set pieces yeah there's not a lot of feeling of like a very flow through plot, but by the end, I'm like, I don't really give a shit because I just watched a whole collection of really great set pieces yeah. that were so creative and so much fun and had so many big laughs that I just had a great time. I mean, it's, it's, it's Chow. It's Stephen Chow. Yeah. Uh, you know, getting to play with one of the, you know, true great literary classics. Yeah. And, you know, I really hope that he gets to come back and do more of this, which the amount of money it made, the idea he's not going Startling to. that he wouldn't be able to. Yeah, in fact, they've even started to talk in advance about it a little bit and say he, if they do, he will be playing a role in the next well, one. Well, I think also, you know, he takes forever to get anything 
gut. He does. I mean, he's, he's not the tough. world's fastest director. I mean, how long was no. it between Shao and Sokka and Kung Fu Hustle? Quite a while. But I think in part that's how he works, you know, he, because he his set pieces are so minute, so perfectly defined, and, the, you know, there's so much pre-production and post-production, just even on that first sequence. Yeah. It's just insane to think that he's going to be, a, you know, he's going to go, oh, we'll knock it out next week. So, you know, I, you know, I could see this is probably going to be, you know, Three years in between him getting anything done. You know, so. Yeah, this is. Plus, he's also a busy actor as well. I mean, he's he's on the go. The, so. the last thing he directed was CG, CJ Seventeen in two thousand and eight, and then two thousand four was Kung Fu Hustle. Although, you know, it's funny for the longest time, Kung Fu Hustle two was listed on his his slate. I mean, for a lot years, it was listed on his slate, and they finally just said a few months ago, it's not happening. Yeah, sorry, no. <laughs> What's- it's kind of like Robert Rodriguez. How long were we waiting for Sin City 2? And finally, we're getting it. Or or uh, Quentin Tarantino with uh, uh, Kill Bill, The Complete Bloody Affair. Well, that's, co- that's just because we're not in Japan. Oh, they actually did get to see it. They, yeah, there. it's been released over there for well, quite a while. Well, then fuck you, Quentin Tarantino. Yeah, like, <laughs> I, I think that's just studio bullshit. I, I, I think that's true. <sighs> dear, dear Miramax slash Weinstein, stop. Just get it done now. Yeah. Well, anyway, we are giving away a copy of Journey to the West, Conquering the Demons, to you, our listeners. We have a copy to give away to you, and here's what we want you to do. We want you to tweet at oneofus.net, I guess with the hashtag uh, journey, uh, journey Giveaway, that works. Although people will be like, wait, are you giving away a copy of Escape? No, Is it the video game? Yeah. Because <laughs> I kind of would like a copy of the Ooh, video game. Good. Yeah. Um, but no, it's this. I want you to say... What's the name of the crazy Hong Kong fantasy martial arts film that's about people who work at one of us dot that? <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, whatever you can think of, the wackier the better. If you can make us laugh, then that, you know, the one who makes us laugh the most ultimately is the one who's going to get this. So send that off. Uh, Brian from the alternate universe will be, that's right there, the alternate universe. Yeah, now. they are now. Yeah, uh, see, this is what happens when you don't turn is, up on time. It's going to be picking one and we will let you know. But thank you so much for joining us. That was fun. Richard. That was always a blast. Thank you so much. And we will be back next week with more of the home titles you love and loathe. Uh, but until then, you know, the thing that Brian always says. Yeah, the thing. Yeah, the thing about goodbye and it was fun. And Bye, it was fun. We're so glad we had this time together. Oh.